Highbridge Audio Productions presents The 48 Laws of Power, written by Robert Greene and read by Don Leslie. Preface The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power. Everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power-hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent. So we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. This game of constant duplicity most resembles the power dynamic that existed in the scheming world of the old aristocratic court. Throughout history, a court has always formed itself around the person in power, king, queen, emperor, leader. The courtiers who filled this court were in an especially delicate position. They had to serve their masters, but if they seemed to fawn, if they carried favor too obviously, the other courtiers around them would notice and would act against them. Attempts to win the master's favor then had to be subtle. And even skilled courtiers capable of such subtlety still had to protect themselves from their fellow courtiers, who at all moments were scheming to push them aside. Meanwhile, the court was supposed to represent the height of civilization and refinement. Violent or overt power moves were frowned upon. Courtiers would work silently and secretly against any among them who used force. This was the courtier's dilemma. While appearing the very paragon of elegance, they had to outwit and thwart their own opponents in the subtlest of ways. The successful courtier learned over time to make all of his moves indirect. If he stabbed an opponent in the back, it was with a velvet glove on his hand and the sweetest of smiles on his face. Instead of using coercion or outright treachery, the perfect courtier got his way through seduction, charm, deception, and subtle strategy, always planning several moves ahead. Life in the court was a never-ending game that required constant vigilance and tactical thinking. It was civilized war. Today, we face a peculiarly similar paradox to that of the courtier. Everything must appear civilized, decent, democratic, and fair. But if we play by those rules too strictly, if we take them too literally, we are crushed by those around us who are not so foolish. As the great Renaissance diplomat and courtier Niccolo Machiavelli wrote, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. The court imagined itself the pinnacle of refinement, but underneath its glittering surface a cauldron of dark emotions, greed, envy, lust, hatred, boiled and simmered. Our world today similarly imagines itself the pinnacle of fairness, yet the same ugly emotions still stir within us as they have forever. The game is the same. Outwardly, you must seem to respect the niceties, but inwardly, unless you are a fool, you learn quickly to be prudent and to do as Napoleon advised, place your iron hand inside a velvet glove. 
if, like the courtier of times gone by, you can master the arts of indirection, learning to seduce, charm, deceive, and subtly outmaneuver your opponents, you will attain the heights of power. You will be able to make people bend to your will without their realizing what you have done. And if they do not realize what you have done, they will neither resent nor resist you. To some people, the notion of consciously playing power games, no matter how indirect, seems evil, asocial, a relic of the past. They believe they can opt out of the game by behaving in ways that have nothing to do with power. You must beware of such people. They are often among the most adept players at power. They utilize strategies that cleverly disguise the nature of the manipulation involved. These types, for example, will often display their weakness and lack of power as a kind of moral virtue. But true powerlessness, without any motive of self-interest, would not publicize its weakness to gain sympathy or respect. Making a show of one's weakness is actually a very effective strategy, subtle and deceptive, in the game of power. Another strategy of the supposed non-player is to demand equality in every area of life. Everyone must be treated alike, whatever their status and strength. But if, to avoid the taint of power, you attempt to treat everyone equally and fairly, you will confront the problem that some people do certain things better than others. Treating everyone equally means ignoring their differences, elevating the less skillful, and suppressing those who excel. Again, many of those who behave this way are actually deploying another power strategy, redistributing people's rewards in a way that they determine. Yet another way of avoiding the game would be perfect honesty and straightforwardness, since one of the main techniques of those who seek power is deceit and secrecy. But being perfectly honest will inevitably hurt and insult a great many people, some of whom will choose to injure you in return. No one will see your honest statement as completely objective and free of some personal motivation. And they will be right. In truth, the use of honesty is indeed a power strategy intended to convince people of one's noble, good-hearted, selfless character. It is a form of persuasion, even a subtle form of coercion. Finally, those who claim to be non-players may affect an air of naivete to protect them from the accusation that they are after power. Beware again, however, for the appearance of naivete can be an effective means of deceit, and even genuine naivete is not free of the snares of power. Children may be naive in many ways, but they often act from an elemental need to gain control over those around them. Children suffer greatly from feeling powerless in the adult world, and they use any means available to get their way. Genuinely innocent people may still be playing for power and are often horribly effective at the game since they are not hindered by reflection. Once again, those who make a show or display of innocence are the least innocent of all. You can recognize these supposed non-players by the way they flaunt their moral qualities, their piety, their exquisite sense of justice. But since all of us hunger for power 
and almost all of our actions are aimed at gaining it. The non-players are merely throwing dust in our eyes, distracting us from their power plays with their air of moral superiority. If you observe them closely, you will see, in fact, that they are often the ones most skillful at indirect manipulation, even if some of them practice it unconsciously, and they greatly resent any publicizing of the tactics they use every day. If the world is like a giant scheming court and we are trapped inside it, there is no use in trying to opt out of the game. That will only render you powerless, and powerlessness will make you miserable. Instead of struggling against the inevitable, instead of arguing and whining and feeling guilty, it is far better to excel at power. In fact, the better you are at dealing with power, the better friend, lover, husband, wife, and person you become. By following the route of the perfect courtier, you learn to make others feel better about themselves, becoming a source of pleasure to them. They will grow dependent on your abilities and desirous of your presence. By mastering the 48 laws in this book, you spare others the pain that comes from bungling with power by playing with fire without knowing its properties. If the game of power is inescapable, better to be an artist than a denier or a bungler. Learning the game of power requires a certain way of looking at the world, a shifting of perspective. It takes effort and years of practice, for much of the game may not come naturally. Certain basic skills are required. And once you master these skills, you will be able to apply the laws of power more easily. The most important of these skills and power's crucial foundation is the ability to master your emotions. An emotional response to a situation is the single greatest barrier to power, a mistake that will cost you a lot more than any temporary satisfaction you might gain by expressing your feelings. Emotions cloud reason, and if you cannot see the situation clearly, you cannot prepare for and respond to it with any degree of control. Anger is the most destructive of emotional responses, for it clouds your vision the most. It also has a ripple effect that invariably makes situations less controllable and heightens your enemy's resolve. If you are trying to destroy an enemy who has hurt you, far better to keep him off guard by feigning friendliness than showing your anger. Love and affection are also potentially destructive in that they blind you to the often self-serving interests of those whom you least suspect of playing a power game. You cannot repress anger or love or avoid feeling them, and you should not try, but you should be careful about how you express them. And most important, they should never influence your plans and strategies in any way. Related to mastering your emotions is the ability to distance yourself from the present moment and think objectively about the past and future. Like the double-faced Roman deity and guardian of all gates and doorways, you must be able to look in both directions at once the better to handle danger from wherever it comes. 
Such is the face you must create for yourself, one face looking continuously to the future and the other to the past. For the future, the motto is, No days unalert. Nothing should catch you by surprise because you are constantly imagining problems before they arise. Instead of spending your time dreaming of your plan's happy ending, you must work on calculating every possible permutation and pitfall that might emerge in it. The further you see, the more steps ahead you plan, the more powerful you become. The other face of Janus looks constantly to the past, though not to remember past hurts or bear grudges. That would only curb your power. Half of the game is learning how to forget those events in the past that eat away at you and cloud your reason. The real purpose of the backward-glancing eye is to educate yourself constantly. You look at the past to learn from those who came before you. The many historical examples in this book will greatly help that process. Then, having looked to the past, you look closer at hand, to your own actions and those of your friends. This is the most vital school you can learn from because it comes from personal experience. You begin by examining the mistakes you have made in the past, the ones that have most grievously held you back. You analyze them in terms of the 48 laws of power, and you extract from them a lesson and an oath. I shall never repeat such a mistake. I shall never fall into such a trap again. If you can evaluate and observe yourself in this way, you can learn to break the patterns of the past, an immensely valuable skill. Power requires the ability to play with appearances. To this end, you must learn to wear many masks and keep a bag full of deceptive tricks. Deception and masquerade should not be seen as ugly or immoral. All human interaction requires deception on many levels. And in some ways, what separates humans from animals is our ability to lie and deceive. In Greek myths, in India's Mahabharata cycle, in the Middle Eastern epic of Gilgamesh, it is the privilege of the gods to use deceptive arts. A great man, Odysseus, for instance, was judged by his ability to rival the craftiness of the gods, stealing some of their divine power by matching them in wits and deception. Deception is a developed art of civilization and the most potent weapon in the game of power. You cannot succeed at deception unless you take a somewhat distanced approach to yourself, unless you can be many different people wearing the mask that the day and the moment require. With such a flexible approach to all appearances, including your own, you lose a lot of the inward heaviness that holds people down. Make your face as malleable as the actors. Work to conceal your intentions from the others. Practice luring people into traps. Playing with appearances and mastering arts of deception are among the aesthetic pleasures of life. They are also key components in the acquisition of power.
If deception is the most potent weapon in your arsenal, then patience in all things is your crucial shield. Patience will protect you from making moronic blunders. Like mastering your emotions, patience is a skill. It does not come naturally. But nothing about power is natural. Power is more godlike than anything in the natural world. And patience is the supreme virtue of the gods who have nothing but time. Everything good will happen. The grass will grow again. If you give it time and see several steps into the future, Impatience, on the other hand, only makes you look weak. It is a principal impediment to power. Power is essentially amoral, and one of the most important skills to acquire is the ability to see circumstances rather than good or evil. Power is a game. This cannot be repeated too often. And in games, you do not judge your opponents by their intentions, but by the effect of their actions. You measure their strategy and their power by what you can see and feel. How often are someone's intentions made the issue only to cloud and deceive? What does it matter if another player, your friend or rival, intended good things and had only your interests at heart if the effects of his action lead to so much ruin and confusion. It is only natural for people to cover up their actions with all kinds of justifications, always assuming that they have acted out of goodness. You must learn to inwardly laugh each time you hear this and never get caught up in gauging someone's intentions and actions through a set of moral judgments that are really an excuse for the accumulation of power. It is a game. Your opponent sits opposite you. Both of you behave as gentlemen or ladies, observing the rules of the game and taking nothing personally. You play with a strategy, and you observe your opponent's moves with as much calmness as you can muster. In the end, you will appreciate the politeness of those you are playing with more than their good and sweet intentions. Train your eye to follow the results of their moves, the outward circumstances, and do not be distracted by anything else. Half of your mastery of power comes from what you do not do, what you do not allow yourself to get dragged into. For this skill, you must learn to judge all things by what they cost you. As Nietzsche wrote, the value of a thing sometimes lies not in what one attains with it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. Perhaps you will attain your goal, and a worthy goal at that, but at what price? Apply this standard to everything, including whether to collaborate with other people to come to their aid. In the end, life is short, opportunities are few, and you have only so much energy to draw on. And in this sense, time is as important a consideration as any other. Never waste valuable time or mental peace of mind on the affairs of others that is too high a price to pay. Power is a social game. To learn and master it 
you must develop the ability to study and understand people. As the great 17th-century thinker and courtier Balthazar Gracian wrote, Many people spend time studying the properties of animals or herbs. How much more important it would be to study those of people with whom we must live or die. To be a master player, you must also be a master psychologist. You must recognize motivations and see through the cloud of dust with which people surround their actions. An understanding of people's hidden motives is the single greatest piece of knowledge you can have in acquiring power. It opens up endless possibilities of deception, seduction, and manipulation. People are of infinite complexity, and you can spend a lifetime watching them without ever fully understanding them. So it is all the more important, then, to begin your education now. In doing so, you must also keep one principle in mind. Never discriminate as to whom you study and whom you trust. Never trust anyone completely and study everyone including friends and loved ones. Finally, you must learn always to take the indirect route to power. Disguise your cunning like a billiard ball that caroms several times before it hits its target. Your moves must be planned and developed in the least obvious way. By training yourself to be indirect, you can thrive in the modern court appearing the paragon of decency while being the consummate manipulator. Consider the 48 Laws of Power, a kind of handbook on the arts of indirection. The laws are based on the writings of men and women who have studied and mastered the game of power. These writings span a period of more than 3,000 years and were created in civilizations as disparate as ancient China and Renaissance Italy. Yet they share common threads and themes, together hinting at an essence of power that has yet to be fully articulated. The 48 Laws of Power are the distillation of this accumulated wisdom gathered from the writings of the most illustrious strategists, statesmen, courtiers, seducers, and con artists in history. The laws have a simple premise. Certain actions almost always increase one's power, the observance of the law, while others decrease it and even ruin us, the transgression of the law. These transgressions and observances are illustrated by historical examples. The laws are timeless and definitive. The 48 laws of power can be used in several ways. By listening to this program straight through, you can learn about power in general. Although several of the laws may seem not to pertain directly to your life, in time, you will probably find that all of them have some application and that, in fact, they are interrelated. By getting an overview of the entire subject, you will best be able to evaluate your own past actions and gain a greater degree of control over your immediate affairs. The program can also be picked apart for entertainment 
for an enjoyable ride through the foibles and great deeds of our predecessors in power. A warning, however, to those who use the program for this purpose, it might be better to turn back. Power is endlessly seductive and deceptive in its own way. It is a labyrinth. Your mind becomes consumed with solving its infinite problems, and you soon realize how pleasantly lost you have become. In other words, it becomes most amusing by taking it seriously. Do not be frivolous with such a critical matter. The gods of power frown on the frivolous. They give ultimate satisfaction only to those who study and reflect and punish those who skim the surfaces looking for a good time. Law 1. Never outshine the master. Judgment. Always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please and impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents, or you might accomplish the opposite, inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are, and you will attain the heights of power. Transgression of the Law Nicolas Fouquet, Louis XIV's finance minister in the first years of his reign, was a generous man who loved lavish parties pretty women, and poetry. He also loved money, for he led an extravagant lifestyle. Fouquet was clever and very much indispensable to the king. So, when the prime minister, Jules Mazarin, died in 1661, the finance minister expected to be named the successor. Instead, the king decided to abolish the position. This and other signs made Fouquet suspect that he was falling out of favor, and so he decided to ingratiate himself with the king by staging the most spectacular party the world had ever seen. The party's ostensible purpose would be to commemorate the completion of Fouquet's chateau, Vaux-le-Vicomte, but its real function was to pay tribute to the king, the guest of honor. The most brilliant nobility of Europe and some of the greatest minds of the time, La Fontaine, La Rochefoucauld, Madame de Sévigné, attended the party. Molière wrote a play for the occasion in which he himself was to perform at the evening's conclusion. The party began with a lavish seven-course dinner featuring foods from the Orient never before tasted in France as well as new dishes created especially for the night. The meal was accompanied with music commissioned by Fouquet to honor the king. After dinner, there was a promenade through the chateau's gardens. The grounds and fountains of Vaux-le-Vicomte were to be the inspiration for Versailles. Fouquet personally accompanied the young king through the geometrically aligned arrangements of shrubbery and flower beds. Arriving at the garden's canals, they witnessed a fireworks display which was followed by the performance of Moliere's play. The party ran well into the night, and everyone agreed it was the most amazing affair they had ever attended. 
The next day, Fouquet was arrested by the king's head musketeer, D'Artagnan. Three months later, he went on trial for stealing from the country's treasury. Actually, most of the stealing he was accused of, he had done on the king's behalf and with the king's permission. Fouquet was found guilty and sent to the most isolated prison in France, high in the Pyrenees Mountains, where he spent the last 20 years of his life in solitary confinement. Interpretation Louis XIV, the Sun King, was a proud and arrogant man who wanted to be the center of attention at all times. He could not countenance being outdone in lavishness by anyone, and certainly not his finance minister. To succeed Fouquet, Louis chose Jean-Baptiste Colbert, a man famous for his parsimony and for giving the dullest parties in Paris. Colbert made sure that any money liberated from the treasury went straight into Louis's hands. With the money, Louis built a palace even more magnificent than Fouquet's, the glorious Palace of Versailles. He used the same architects, decorators, and garden designer. And at Versailles, Louis hosted parties even more extravagant than the one that cost Fouquet his freedom. Let us examine the situation. The evening of the party, as Fouquet presented spectacle on spectacle to Louis, each more magnificent than the one before, he imagined the affair as demonstrating his loyalty and devotion to the king. Not only did he think the party would put him back in the king's favor, he thought it would show his good taste, his connections, and his popularity making him indispensable to the king and demonstrating that he would make an excellent prime minister. Instead, however, each new spectacle, each appreciative smile bestowed by the guests on Fouquet, made it seem to Louis that his own friends and subjects were more charmed by the finance minister than by the king himself, and that Fouquet was actually flaunting his wealth and power. Rather than flattering Louis XIV, Fouquet's elaborate party offended the king's vanity. Louis would not admit this to anyone, of course. Instead, he found a convenient excuse to rid himself of a man who had inadvertently made him feel insecure. Such is the fate, in some form or other, of all those who unbalance the master's sense of self, poke holes in his vanity, or make him doubt his preeminence. Observance of the Law In the early 1600s, the Italian astronomer and mathematician Galileo found himself in a precarious position. He depended on the generosity of great rulers to support his research, and so, like all Renaissance scientists, he would sometimes make gifts of his inventions and discoveries to the leading patrons of the time. Once, for instance, he presented a military compass he had invented to the Duke of Gonzaga. Then, he dedicated a book explaining the use of the compass to the Medicis. Both rulers were grateful, and through them, Galileo was able to find more students to teach. No matter how great the discovery, however, his patrons usually paid him with gifts, not cash. This made for a life of constant insecurity and dependence. 
There must be an easier way, he thought. Galileo hit on a new strategy in 1610 when he discovered the moons of Jupiter. Instead of dividing the discovery among his patrons, giving one the telescope he had used, dedicating a book to another, and so on, as he had done in the past, he decided to focus exclusively on the Medicis. He chose the Medicis for one reason. Shortly after Cosimo I had established the Medici dynasty in 1540, he had made Jupiter the mightiest of the gods, the Medici symbol, a symbol of a power that went beyond politics and banking, one linked to ancient Rome and its divinities. Galileo turned his discovery of Jupiter's moons into a cosmic event honoring the Medici's greatness. Shortly after the discovery, he announced that the bright stars, the moons of Jupiter, offered themselves in the heavens to his telescope at the same time as Cosimo II's enthronement. He said that the number of the moons, four, harmonized with the number of the Medicis, Cosimo II had three brothers, and that the moons orbited Jupiter as these four suns revolved around Cosimo I, the dynasty's founder. More than coincidence, this showed that the heavens themselves reflected the ascendancy of the Medici family. After he dedicated the discovery to the Medicis, Galileo commissioned an emblem representing Jupiter sitting on a cloud with the four stars circling about him and presented this to Cosimo II as a symbol of his link to the stars. In 1610, Cosimo II made Galileo his official court philosopher and mathematician with a full salary. For a scientist, this was the coup of a lifetime. The days of begging for patronage were over. Interpretation In one stroke, Galileo gained more with his new strategy than he had in years of begging. The reason is simple. All masters want to appear more brilliant than other people. The producer of a great work wants to feel he is more than just the provider of the financing. He wants to appear creative and powerful, and also more important than the work produced in his name. Instead of insecurity, you must give him glory. Galileo did not challenge the intellectual authority of the Medicis with his discovery, or make them feel inferior in any way. By literally aligning them with the stars, he made them shine brilliantly among the courts of Italy. He did not outshine the master. He made the master outshine all others. Keys to Power When it comes to power, outshining the master is perhaps the worst mistake of all. Do not fool yourself into thinking that life has changed much since the days of Louis XIV and the Medicis. Those who attain high standing in life are like kings and queens. They want to feel secure in their positions and superior to those around them in intelligence, wit, and charm. It is a deadly but common misperception to believe that by displaying and vaunting your gifts and talents, you are winning the master's affection. He may feign appreciation, 
but at his first opportunity he will replace you with someone less intelligent, less attractive, less threatening, just as Louis XIV replaced the sparkling Fouquet with the bland Colbert. And as with Louis, he will not admit the truth, but will find an excuse to rid himself of your presence. This law involves two rules that you must realize. First, you can inadvertently outshine a master simply by being yourself. There are masters who are more insecure than others, monstrously insecure. You may naturally outshine them by your charm and grace. No one had more natural talents than Astore Manfredi, Prince of Faenza. The most handsome of all the young princes of Italy, he captivated his subjects with his generosity and open spirit. In the year 1500, Cesare Borgia laid siege to Faenza. When the city surrendered, the citizens expected the worst from the cruel Borgia, who, however, decided to spare the town. He simply occupied its fortress, executed none of its citizens, and allowed Prince Manfredi, 18 at the time, to remain with his court in complete freedom. A few weeks later, though, soldiers hauled Astore Manfredi away to a Roman prison. A year after that, his body was fished out of the river Tiber, a stone tied around his neck. Borgia justified the horrible deed with some sort of trumped-up charge of treason and conspiracy. But the real problem was that he was notoriously vain and insecure. The young man was outshining him without even trying. Given Manfredi's natural talents, the prince's mere presence made Borgia seem less attractive and charismatic. The lesson is simple. If you cannot help being charming and superior, you must learn to avoid such monsters of vanity. Either that or find a way to mute your good qualities when in the company of a Cesare Borgia. Second, never imagine that because the master loves you, you can do anything you want. Entire books could be written about favorites who fell out of favor by taking their status for granted, for daring to outshine. Knowing the dangers of outshining your master, you can turn this law to your advantage. First, you must flatter and puff up your master. Overt flattery can be effective, but has its limits. It is too direct and obvious and looks bad to other courtiers. Discreet flattery is much more powerful. If you are more intelligent than your master, for example, seem the opposite. Make him appear more intelligent than you. Act naïve. Make it seem that you need his expertise. Commit harmless mistakes that will not hurt you in the long run, but will give you the chance to ask for his help. Masters adore such requests. A master who cannot bestow on you the gifts of his experience may direct rancor and ill will at you instead. If your ideas are more creative than your master's, ascribe them to him in as public a manner as possible. Make it clear that your advice is merely an echo of his advice. 
He must appear as the sun around which everyone revolves, radiating power and brilliance, the center of attention. If you are thrust into the position of entertaining him, a display of your limited means may win you his sympathy. Any attempt to impress him with your grace and generosity can prove fatal. Learn from Fouquet or pay the price. In all of these cases, it is not a weakness to disguise your strengths if, in the end, they lead to power. By letting others outshine you, you remain in control instead of being a victim of their insecurity. This will all come in handy the day you decide to rise above your inferior status. If, like Galileo, you can make your master shine even more in the eyes of others, then you are a godsend and you will be instantly promoted. Law 2. Never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. Judgment. Be wary of friends. They will betray you more quickly, for they are easily aroused to envy. They also become spoiled and tyrannical. But hire a former enemy, and he will be more loyal than a friend, because he has more to prove. In fact, you have more to fear from friends than from enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. Transgression of the Law In the mid-9th century A.D., a young man named Michael III assumed the throne of the Byzantine Empire. His mother, the Empress Theodora, had been banished to a nunnery, and her lover, Theoctistus, had been murdered. At the head of the conspiracy to depose Theodora and enthrone Michael had been Michael's uncle, Bardas, a man of intelligence and ambition. Michael was now a young, inexperienced ruler, surrounded by intriguers, murderers, and profligates. In this time of peril, he needed someone he could trust as his counselor, and his thoughts turned to Basilius, his best friend. Basilius had no experience whatsoever in government and politics. In fact, he was the head of the royal stables, but he had proven his love and gratitude time and again. They had met a few years before, when Michael had been visiting the stables, just as a wild horse got loose. Basilius, a young groom from peasant Macedonian stock, had saved Michael's life. The groom's strength and courage had impressed Michael, who immediately raised Basilius from the obscurity of being a horse trainer to the position of head of the stables. He loaded his friend with gifts and favors, and they became inseparable. Basilius was sent to the finest school in Byzantium, and the crude peasant became a cultured and sophisticated courtier. Now Michael was emperor, and in need of someone loyal. Who could he better trust with the post of chamberlain and chief counselor than a young man who owed him everything? Basilius could be trained for the job, and Michael loved him like a brother. Ignoring the advice of those who recommended the much more qualified Bardas, Michael chose his friend. Basilius learned well and was soon advising the emperor on all matters of state. The only problem seemed to be money. Basilius never had enough. 
Exposure to the splendor of Byzantine court life made him avaricious for the perks of power. Michael doubled, then tripled his salary, ennobled him, and married him off to his own mistress, Eudoxia Ingerina. Keeping such a trusted friend and advisor satisfied was worth any price. But more trouble was to come. Bardas was now head of the army, and Basilius convinced Michael that the man was hopelessly ambitious. Under the illusion that he could control his nephew, Bardas had conspired to put him on the throne, and he could conspire again, this time, to get rid of Michael and assume the crown himself. Basilius poured poison into Michael's ear until the emperor agreed to have his uncle murdered. During a great horse race, Basilius closed in on Bardas in the crowd and stabbed him to death. Soon after, Basilius asked that he replace Bardas as head of the army, where he could keep control of the realm and quell rebellion. This was granted. Now Basilius's power and wealth only grew, and a few years later, Michael, in financial straits from his own extravagance, asked him to pay back some of the money he had borrowed over the years. To Michael's shock and astonishment, Basilius refused, with a look of such impudence that the emperor suddenly realized his predicament. The former stableboy had more money, more allies in the army and senate, and in the end, more power than the emperor himself. A few weeks later, after a night of heavy drinking, Michael awoke to find himself surrounded by soldiers. Basilius watched as they stabbed the emperor to death. Then, after proclaiming himself emperor, he rode his horse through the streets of Byzantium, brandishing the head of his former benefactor and best friend at the end of a long pike. Interpretation Michael staked his future on the sense of gratitude he thought Basilius must feel for him. Surely, Basilius would serve him best. He owed the emperor his wealth, his education, and his position. It was only on the fateful day when the emperor saw that impudent smile on Basilius's face that he realized his deadly mistake. He had created a monster. He had allowed a man to see power up close, a man who then wanted more, who asked for anything and got it, who felt encumbered by the charity he had received and simply did what many people do in such a situation. They forget the favors they have received and imagine they have earned their success by their own merits. At Michael's moment of realization, he could still have saved his own life but friendship and love blind every man to their interests. Nobody believes a friend can betray, and Michael went on disbelieving until the day his head ended up on a pike. Keys to Power It is natural to want to employ your friends when you find yourself in times of need. The world is a harsh place, and your friends soften the harshness. Besides, you know them. Why depend on a stranger when you have a friend at hand? The problem is that you often do not know your friends as well as you imagine. When you decide to hire a friend, you gradually discover the qualities he or she has kept hidden. Strangely enough, 
It is your act of kindness that unbalances everything. People want to feel they deserve their good fortune. The receipt of a favor can become oppressive. It means you have been chosen because you are a friend, not necessarily because you are deserving. There is almost a touch of condescension in the act of hiring friends that secretly afflicts them. The injury will come out slowly, a little more honesty, flashes of resentment and envy here and there, and before you know it, your friendship fades. The more favors and gifts you supply to revive the friendship, the less gratitude you receive. All working situations require a kind of distance between people. You are trying to work, not make friends. Friendliness, real or false, only obscures that fact. The key to power, then, is the ability to judge who is best able to further your interests in all situations. Keep friends for friendship, but work with the skilled and competent. Whenever you can, bury the hatchet with an enemy and make a point of putting him in your service. Never let the presence of enemies upset or distress you. You are far better off with a declared opponent or two than not knowing where your real enemies lie. The man of power welcomes conflict, using enemies to enhance his reputation as a sure-footed fighter who can be relied upon in times of uncertainty. Law 3. Conceal your intentions. Judgment. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you are up to, they cannot prepare a defense. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realize your intentions, it will be too late. Part 1. Use decoyed objects of desire and red herrings to throw people off the scent. If at any point in the deception you practice, people have the slightest suspicion as to your intentions, all is lost. Do not give them the chance to sense what you are up to. Throw them off the scent by dragging red herrings across the path. Use false sincerity. Send ambiguous signals. Set up misleading objects of desire. Unable to distinguish the genuine from the false, they cannot pick out your real goal. Observance of the Law in 1850, the young Otto von Bismarck, then a 35-year-old deputy in the Prussian parliament, was at a turning point in his career. The issues of the day were the unification of the many states, including Prussia, into which Germany was then divided, and a war against Austria, the powerful neighbor to the south that hoped to keep the Germans weak and at odds, even threatening to intervene if they tried to unite. Prince William, next in line to be Prussia's king, was in favor of going to war, and the Parliament rallied to the cause, prepared to back any mobilization of troops. The only ones to oppose war were the present king, Frederick William IV, and his ministers who preferred to appease the powerful Austrians. Throughout his career, Bismarck had been a loyal, even passionate supporter of Prussian might 
and power. He dreamed of German unification, of going to war against Austria and humiliating the country that for so long had kept Germany divided. A former soldier, he saw warfare as a glorious business. This, after all, was the man who years later would say, the great questions of the time will be decided not by speeches and resolutions, but by iron and blood. Passionate patriot and lover of military glory, Bismarck nevertheless gave a speech in Parliament at the height of the war fever that astonished all who heard it. Woe unto the statesman, he said, who makes war without a reason that will still be valid when the war is over. After the war, you will all look differently at these questions. Will you then have the courage to turn to the peasant contemplating the ashes of his farm, to the man who has been crippled, to the father who has lost his children? Not only did Bismarck go on to talk of the madness of this war, but, strangest of all, he praised Austria and defended her actions. This went against everything he had stood for. The consequences were immediate. Bismarck was against the war. What could this possibly mean? Other deputies were confused, and several of them changed their votes. Eventually, the king and his ministers won out, and war was averted. A few weeks after Bismarck's infamous speech, the king, grateful that he had spoken for peace, made him a cabinet minister. A few years later, he became the Prussian premier. In this role, he eventually led his country and the peace-loving king into a war against Austria, crushing the former empire and establishing a mighty German state, with Prussia at its head. Interpretation At the time of his speech, in 1850, Bismarck made several calculations. First, he sensed that the Prussian military, which had not kept pace with other European armies, was unready for war, that Austria, in fact, might very well win, a disastrous result for the future. Second, if the war were lost and Bismarck had supported it, his career would be gravely jeopardized. The king and his conservative ministers wanted peace. Bismarck wanted power. The answer was to throw people off the scent by supporting a cause he detested, saying things he would laugh at if said by another. A whole country was fooled. It was because of Bismarck's speech that the king made him a minister, a position from which he quickly rose to be prime minister, attaining the power to strengthen the Prussian military and accomplish what he had wanted all along the humiliation of Austria, and the unification of Germany under Prussia's leadership. Through insincerity and misleading signals, he deceived everyone, concealed his purpose, and attained everything he wanted. Such is the power of hiding your intentions. Keys to Power Most people are open books. They say what they feel, blurt out their opinions at every opportunity, and constantly reveal their plans and intentions. They do this for several reasons. First, it is easy and natural to always want to talk about one's feelings and plans for the future. It takes effort to control your tongue and monitor what you reveal. 
Second, many believe that by being honest and open, they are winning people's hearts and showing their good nature. They are greatly deluded. Honesty is actually a blunt instrument which bloodies more than it cuts. Your honesty is likely to offend people. It is much more prudent to tailor your words, telling people what they want to hear, rather than the coarse and ugly truth of what you feel or think. More important, by being unabashedly open, you make yourself so predictable and familiar that it is almost impossible to respect or fear you, and power will not accrue to a person who cannot inspire such emotions. If you yearn for power, quickly lay honesty aside and train yourself in the art of concealing your intentions. Master the art, and you will always have the upper hand. Basic to an ability to conceal one's intentions is a simple truth about human nature. Our first instinct is to always trust appearances. We cannot go around doubting the reality of what we see and hear. Constantly imagining that appearances concealed something else would exhaust and terrify us. This fact makes it relatively easy to conceal one's intentions. Simply dangle an object you seem to desire, a goal you seem to aim for, in front of people's eyes, and they will take the appearance for reality. Once their eyes focus on the decoy, they will fail to notice what you are really up to. You can use this tactic in the following manner. Hide your intentions not by closing up, with the risk of appearing secretive and making people suspicious, but by talking endlessly about your desires and goals, just not your real ones. You will kill three birds with one stone. You appear friendly, open, and trusting. You conceal your intentions and you send your rivals on time-consuming goose chases. Another powerful tool in throwing people off the scent is false sincerity. People easily mistake sincerity for honesty. Remember, their first instinct is to trust appearances, and since they value honesty and want to believe in the honesty of those around them, they will rarely doubt you or see through your act. Seeming to believe what you say gives your words great weight. To make your false sincerity an effective weapon in concealing your intentions, espouse a belief in honesty and forthrightness as important social values. Do this as publicly as possible. Emphasize your position on this subject by occasionally divulging some heartfelt thought though only one that is actually meaningless or irrelevant, of course. Napoleon's minister, Talleyrand, was a master at taking people into his confidence by revealing some apparent secret. This feigned confidence, a decoy, would then elicit a real confidence on the other person's part. Remember, the best deceivers do everything they can to cloak their roguish qualities. They cultivate an air of honesty in one area to disguise their dishonesty in others. Honesty is merely another decoy in their arsenal of weapons. Part 2. Use smokescreens to disguise your actions. Deception is always the best strategy. 
but the best deceptions require a screen of smoke to distract people's attention from your real purpose. The bland exterior, like the unreadable poker face, is often the perfect smokescreen, hiding your intentions behind the comfortable and familiar. If you lead the sucker down a familiar path, he won't catch on when you lead him into a trap. Observance of the Law In 1910, a Mr. Sam Giesel of Chicago sold his warehouse business for close to $1 million. He settled down to semi-retirement and the managing of his many properties, but deep inside, he itched for the old days of deal-making. One day, a young man named Joseph Weil visited his office, wanting to buy an apartment he had up for sale. Giesel explained the terms. The price was $8,000, but he only required a down payment of $2,000. Weil said he would sleep on it, but he came back the following day and offered to pay the full $8,000 in cash if Giesel could wait a couple of days until a deal Weil was working on came through. Even in semi-retirement, a clever businessman like Giesel was curious as to how Weil would be able to come up with so much cash, roughly $150,000 today, so quickly. Weil seemed reluctant to say and quickly changed the subject, but Giesel was persistent. Finally, after assurances of confidentiality, Weil told Giesel the following story. Weil's uncle was the secretary to a coterie of multimillionaire financiers. These wealthy gentlemen had purchased a hunting lodge in Michigan ten years ago, at a cheap price. They had not used the lodge for a few years, so they had decided to sell it and had asked Weil's uncle to get whatever he could for it. For reasons, good reasons, of his own, the uncle had been nursing a grudge against the millionaires for years, this was his chance to get back at them. He would sell the property for $35,000 to a setup man, whom it was Wiles' job to find. The financiers were too wealthy to worry about this low price. The setup man would then turn around and sell the property again for its real price, around $155,000. The uncle, Wile, and the third man would split the profits from this second sale. It was all legal and for a good cause, the uncle's just retribution. Giesel had heard enough. He wanted to be the set-up buyer. Weil was reluctant to involve him, but Giesel would not back down. The idea of a large profit plus a little adventure had him champing at the bit. Weil explained that Giesel would have to put up the $35,000 in cash to bring the deal off. Giesel, a millionaire, said he could get the money with a snap of his fingers. Weil finally relented and agreed to arrange a meeting between the uncle, Giesel, and the financiers in the town of Galesburg, Illinois. On the train ride to Galesburg, Giesel met the uncle, an impressive man with whom he avidly discussed business. Weil also brought along a companion, a somewhat paunchy man named George Gross. Weil explained to Giesel that he himself was a boxing trainer, that Gross was one of the promising prize fighters he trained, and that he had asked Gross to come along to make sure the fighter stayed in shape. For a promising fighter, Gross was unimpressive looking. He had gray hair and a beer belly, 
But Giesel was so excited about the deal that he didn't really think about the man's flabby appearance. Once in Galesburg, Weil and his uncle went to fetch the financiers, while Giesel waited in a hotel room with Gross, who promptly put on his boxing trunks. As Giesel half-watched, Gross began to shadow box. Distracted as he was, Giesel ignored how badly the boxer wheezed after a few minutes of exercise, although his style seemed real enough. An hour later, Weil and his uncle reappeared with the financiers, an impressive, intimidating group of men, all wearing fancy suits. The meeting went well, and the financiers agreed to sell the lodge to Giesel, who had already had the $35,000 wired to a local bank. This minor business now settled, the financiers sat back in their chairs and began to banter about high finance, throwing out the name J.P. Morgan as if they knew the man. Finally, one of them noticed the boxer in the corner of the room while explained what he was doing there. The financier countered that he too had a boxer in his entourage, whom he named. Wilde laughed brazenly and exclaimed that his man could easily knock out their man. Conversation escalated into argument. In the heat of passion, Wilde challenged the men to a bet. The financiers eagerly agreed and left to get their man ready for a fight the next day. As soon as they had left, the uncle yelled at Wilde right in front of Giesel. They did not have enough money to bet with, and once the financiers discovered this, the uncle would be fired. Weil apologized for getting him in this mess, but he had a plan. He knew the other boxer well, and with a little bribe, they could fix the fight. But where would the money come from for the bet? The uncle replied. Without it, they were as good as dead. Finally, Giesel had heard enough. Unwilling to jeopardize his deal with any ill will, he offered his own $35,000 cash for part of the bet. Even if he lost that, he would wire for more money and still make a profit on the sale of the lodge. The uncle and nephew thanked him. With their own $15,000 and Giesel's $35,000, they would manage to have enough for the bet. That evening, as Giesel watched the two boxers rehearse the fix in the hotel room, his mind reeled at the killing he was going to make from both the boxing match and the sale of the lodge. The fight took place in a gym the next day. Weil handled the cash, which was placed for security in a locked box. Everything was proceeding as planned in the hotel room. The financiers were looking glum at how badly their fighter was doing, and Giesel was dreaming about the easy money he was about to make. Then, suddenly... A wild swing by the financier's fighter hit Gross hard on the face, knocking him down. When he hit the canvas, blood spurted from his mouth. He coughed, then lay still. One of the financiers, a former doctor, checked his pulse. He was dead. The millionaires panicked. Everyone had to get out before the police arrived. They could all be charged with murder. Terrified, Giesel hightailed it out of the gym and back to Chicago leaving behind his $35,000, which he was only too glad to forget, for it seemed a small price to pay to avoid being implicated in a crime. He never wanted to see Weil or any of the others again. After Giesel scurried out, Gross stood up under his own steam. The blood that had spurted from his mouth came from a ball filled with chicken blood and hot water that he had hidden in his cheek. 
The whole affair had been masterminded by Weil, better known as the Yellow Kid, one of the most creative con artists in history. Weil split the $35,000 with the financiers and the boxers, all fellow con artists, a nice little profit for a few days' work. Interpretation The Yellow Kid had staked out Giesel as the perfect sucker long before he set up the con. He knew the boxing match scam would be the perfect ruse to separate Giesel from his money quickly and definitively. But he also knew that if he had begun by trying to interest Giesel in the boxing match, he would have failed miserably. He had to conceal his intentions and switch attention, create a smokescreen, in this case, the sale of the lodge. On the train ride and in the hotel room, Giesel's mind had been completely occupied with the pending deal the easy money, the chance to hobnob with wealthy men. He had failed to notice that Gross was out of shape and middle-aged at best. Such is the distracting power of a smokescreen. Engrossed in the business deal, Giesel's attention was easily diverted to the boxing match, but only at a point when it was already too late for him to notice the details that would have given Gross away. The match, after all, now depended on a bribe rather than on the boxer's physical condition. And Giesel was so distracted at the end by the illusion of the boxer's death that he completely forgot about his money. Learn from the yellow kid. The familiar, inconspicuous front is the perfect smokescreen. Approach your mark with an idea that seems ordinary enough. A business deal, financial intrigue. The sucker's mind is distracted, his suspicions allayed. That is when you gently guide him onto the second path, the slippery slope down which he slides helplessly into your trap. Keys to Power If you believe that the deceivers are colorful folk who mislead with elaborate lies and tall tales, you are greatly mistaken. The best deceivers utilize a bland and inconspicuous front that calls no attention to themselves. They know that extravagant words and gestures immediately raise suspicion. Instead, they envelop their mark in the familiar, the banal, the harmless. The simplest form of smokescreen is facial expression. Behind a bland, unreadable exterior, all sorts of mayhem can be planned Without detection, this is a weapon that the most powerful men in history have learned to perfect. It was said that no one could read Franklin D. Roosevelt's face. Baron James Rothschild made a lifelong practice of disguising his real thoughts behind bland smiles and nondescript looks. Stendhal wrote of Talleyrand, Never was a face less of a barometer. As one poker manual explains it, while playing his hand, the good player is seldom an actor. Instead, he practices a bland behavior that minimizes readable patterns, frustrates and confuses opponents, permits greater concentration. An adaptable concept, the smokescreen can be practiced on a number of levels, all playing on the psychological principles of distraction and misdirection. One of the most effective smokescreens is the noble gesture. People want to believe apparently noble gestures are genuine, for the belief is pleasant. They rarely notice how deceptive these gestures can be. 
Another effective smokescreen is the pattern, the establishment of a series of actions that seduce the victim into believing you will continue in the same way. The pattern plays on the psychology of anticipation. Our behavior conforms to patterns, or so we like to think. In 1878, the American robber baron Jay Gould created a company that began to threaten the monopoly of the telegraph company, Western Union. The directors of Western Union decided to buy Gould's company up. They had to spend a hefty sum, but they figured they had managed to rid themselves of an irritating competitor. A few months later, though, Gould was at it again, complaining he had been treated unfairly. He started up a second company to compete with Western Union and its new acquisition. The same thing happened again. Western Union bought him out to shut him up. Soon the pattern began for the third time. But now, Gould went for the juggler. He suddenly staged a bloody takeover struggle and managed to gain complete control of Western Union. He had established a pattern that had tricked the company's directors into thinking his goal was to be bought out at a handsome rate. Once they paid him off, they relaxed and failed to notice that he was actually playing for higher stakes. The pattern is powerful in that it deceives the other person into expecting the opposite of what you are really doing. Remember, it takes patience and humility to dull your brilliant colors to put on the mask of the inconspicuous. Do not despair at having to wear such a bland mask. It is often your unreadability that draws people to you and makes you appear a person of power. Law 4. Always say less than necessary. Judgment. When you are trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear and the less in control. Even if you're saying something banal, it will seem original if you make it vague, open-ended, and sphinx-like. Powerful people impress and intimidate by saying less. The more you say, the more likely you are to say something foolish. Observance of the Law In the court of Louis XIV, nobles and ministers would spend days and nights debating issues of state. They would confer, argue, make and break alliances, and argue again until finally the critical moment arrived. Two of them would be chosen to represent the different sides to Louis himself, who would decide what should be done. After these persons were chosen, everyone would argue some more. How should the issues be phrased? What would appeal to Louis? What would annoy him? At what time of day should the representatives approach him, and in what part of the Versailles Palace? What expression should they have on their faces? Finally, after all this was settled, the fateful moment would finally arrive. The two men would approach Louis, always a delicate matter, and when they finally had his ear, they would talk about the issue at hand, spelling out the options in detail. Louis would listen in silence, a most enigmatic look on his face. Finally, 
when each had finished his presentation and had asked for the king's opinion, he would look at them both and say, I shall see. Then he would walk away. The ministers and courtiers would never hear another word on this subject from the king. They would simply see the result weeks later when he would come to a decision and act. He would never bother to consult them on the matter again. Interpretation Louis XIV was a man of very few words. His most famous remark is, L'État, c'est moi, the state is me. Nothing could be more pithy, yet more eloquent. His infamous, I shall see, was one of several extremely short phrases that he would apply to all manner of requests. Louis was not always this way. As a young man, he was known for talking at length, delighting in his own eloquence. His later taciturnity was self-imposed, an act, a mask he used to keep everybody below him off balance. No one knew exactly where he stood or could predict his reactions. No one could try to deceive him by saying what they thought he wanted to hear because no one knew what he wanted to hear. As they talked on and on to the silent Louis, they revealed more and more about themselves, information he would later use against them to great effect. In the end, Louis's silence kept those around him terrified and under his thumb. It was one of the foundations of his power. As Saint-Simon wrote, no one knew as well as he how to sell his words, his smile, even his glances. Everything in him was valuable because he created differences, and his majesty was enhanced by the sparseness of his words. Keys to Power Power is, in many ways, a game of appearances, and when you say less than necessary, you inevitably appear greater and more powerful than you are. Your silence will make other people uncomfortable. Humans are machines of interpretation and explanation. They have to know what you are thinking. When you carefully control what you reveal, they cannot pierce your intentions or your meaning. Your short answers and silences will put them on the defensive, and they will jump in, nervously filling the silence with all kinds of comments that will reveal valuable information about them and their weaknesses. They will leave a meeting with you feeling as if they had been robbed, and they will go home and ponder your every word. This extra attention to your brief comments will only add to your power. Law 5. So much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Judgment. Reputation is the cornerstone of power. Through reputation alone, you can intimidate and win. Once it slips, however, you are vulnerable and will be attacked on all sides. Make your reputation unassailable. Always be alert to potential attacks and thwart them before they happen. Meanwhile, learn to destroy your enemies by opening holes in their own reputations. Then, stand aside and let public opinion hang them. Observance of the Law During China's War of the Three Kingdoms, A.D. 207-65, to 65, 
The great general Chu Ga Liang, leading the forces of the Shu kingdom, dispatched his vast army to a distant camp while he rested in a small town with a handful of soldiers. Suddenly, sentinels hurried in with the alarming news that an enemy force of over 150,000 troops under Sima Yi was approaching. With only a hundred men to defend him, Chu Ga Liang's situation was hopeless. The enemy would finally capture this renowned leader. Without lamenting his fate or wasting time trying to figure out how he had been caught, Liang ordered his troops to take down their flags, throw open the city gates, and hide. He himself then took a seat on the most visible part of the city's wall, wearing a Taoist robe. He lit some incense, strummed his lute, and began to chant. Minutes later, he could see the vast enemy army approaching, an endless phalanx of soldiers. Pretending not to notice them, he continued to sing and play the lute. Soon the army stood at the town gates. At its head was Sima Yi, who instantly recognized the man on the wall. Even so, as his soldiers itched to enter the unguarded town through its open gates, Sima Yi hesitated, held them back, and studied Liang on the wall. Then he ordered an immediate and speedy retreat. Interpretation Chuga Liang was commonly known as the Sleeping Dragon. His exploits in the War of the Three Kingdoms were legendary. Once a man claiming to be a disaffected enemy lieutenant came to his camp offering help and information. Liang instantly recognized the situation as a setup. This man was a false deserter and should be beheaded. At the last minute, though, as the axe was about to fall, Liang stopped the execution and offered to spare the man's life if he agreed to become a double agent. Grateful and terrified, the man agreed and began supplying false information to the enemy. Liang won battle after battle. The sleeping dragon carefully cultivated his reputation of being the cleverest man in China, one who always had a trick up his sleeve. As powerful as any weapon, this reputation struck fear into his enemy. Sima Yi had fought against Chu Ge Liang dozens of times and knew him well. When he came on the empty city, with Liang praying on the wall, he was stunned. The Taoist robes, the chanting, the incense, this had to be a game of intimidation. The man was obviously taunting him, daring him to walk into a trap. The game was so obvious that for one moment it crossed Yi's mind that Liang actually was alone and desperate. But so great was his fear of Liang that he dared not risk finding out. Such is the power of reputation. It can put a vast army on the defensive, even force them into retreat without a single arrow being fired. Keys to Power The people around us, even our closest friends, will always, to some extent, remain mysterious and unfathomable. Their characters have secret recesses that they never reveal. The unknowableness of other people could prove disturbing if we thought about it long enough, since it would make it impossible for us really to judge other people. So, 
we prefer to ignore this fact and to judge people on their appearances, on what is most visible to our eyes, clothes, gestures, words, actions. In the social realm, appearances are the barometer of almost all of our judgments, and you must never be misled into believing otherwise. One false slip, one awkward or sudden change in your appearance can prove disastrous. This is the reason for the supreme importance of making and maintaining a reputation that is of your own creation. That reputation will protect you in the dangerous game of appearances, distracting the probing eyes of others from knowing what you are really like and giving you a degree of control over how the world judges you, a powerful position to be in. Reputation has a power like magic. With one stroke of its wand, it can double your strength. It can also send people scurrying away from you. Whether the exact same deeds appear brilliant or dreadful can depend entirely on the reputation of the doer. In the beginning, you must work to establish a reputation for one outstanding quality, whether generosity or honesty or cunning. This quality sets you apart and gets other people to talk about you. You then make your reputation known to as many people as possible. Subtly, though, take care to build slowly and with a firm foundation and watch as it spreads like wildfire. Reputation is a treasure to be carefully collected and hoarded. Especially when you are first establishing it, you must protect it strictly anticipating all attacks on it. Once it is solid, do not let yourself get angry or defensive at the slanderous comments of your enemies. That reveals insecurity, not confidence, in your reputation. Take the high road instead and never appear desperate in your self-defense. On the other hand, an attack on another man's reputation is a potent weapon particularly when you have less power than he does. He has much more to lose in such a battle, and your own thus far small reputation gives him a small target when he tries to return your fire. But this tactic must be practiced with skill. You must not seem to engage in petty vengeance. If you do not break your enemy's reputation cleverly, you will inadvertently ruin your own. Law 6. Court Attention at All Cost. Judgment. Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd then, or buried in oblivion. Stand out. Be conspicuous at all cost. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. Part 1. Surround your name with the sensational and scandalous. Draw attention to yourself by creating an unforgettable, even controversial image. Court scandal. Do anything to make yourself seem larger than life and shine more brightly than those around you. Make no distinction between kinds of attention. Notoriety of any sort will bring you power. 
better to be slandered and attacked than ignored. Observance of the Law P.T. Barnum started his career as an assistant to the owner of a circus, Aaron Turner. In 1836, the circus stopped in Annapolis, Maryland, for a series of performances. On the morning of opening day, Barnum took a stroll through town, wearing a new black suit. People started to follow him. Someone in the gathering crowd shouted out that he was the Reverend Ephraim K. Avery infamous as a man acquitted of the charge of murder, but still believed guilty by most Americans. The angry mob tore off Barnum's suit and was ready to lynch him. After desperate appeals, Barnum finally convinced them to follow him to the circus where he could verify his identity. Once there, old Turner confirmed that this was all a practical joke. He himself had spread the rumor that Barnum was Avery. The crowd dispersed, but Barnum, who had nearly been killed, was not amused. He wanted to know what could have induced his boss to play such a trick. My dear Mr. Barnum, Turner replied, it was all for our good. Remember, all we need to ensure success is notoriety. And indeed, everyone in town was talking about the joke, and the circus was packed that night, and every night it stayed in Annapolis. Barnum had learned a lesson he would never forget. Barnum's first big venture of his own was for the American Museum, a collection of curiosities located in New York. One day, a beggar approached Barnum in the street. Instead of giving him money, Barnum decided to employ him. Taking him back to the museum, he gave the man five bricks and told him to make a slow circuit of several blocks. At certain points, he was to lay down a brick on the sidewalk, always keeping one brick in hand. On the return journey, he was to replace each brick on the street with the one he held. Meanwhile, he was to remain serious of countenance and to answer no questions. Once back at the museum, he was to enter, walk around inside, then leave through the back door and make the same brick-laying circuit again. On the man's first walk through the streets, several hundred people watched his mysterious movements. By his fourth circuit, onlookers swarmed around him, debating what he was doing. Every time he entered the museum, he was followed by people who bought tickets to keep watching him. Many of them were distracted by the museum's collections and stayed inside. By the end of the first day, the brick man had drawn over a thousand people into the museum. A few days later, the police ordered him to cease and desist from his walks. The crowds were blocking traffic. The bricklaying stopped, but thousands of New Yorkers had entered the museum, and many of those had become P.T. Barnum converts. Barnum would put a band of musicians on a balcony overlooking the street, beneath a huge banner proclaiming, Free music for the millions. What generosity, New Yorkers thought and they flocked to hear the free concerts. But Barnum took pains to hire the worst musicians he could find, and soon after the band struck up, people would hurry to buy tickets to the museum, where they would be out of earshot of the band's noise and of the booing of the crowd. Interpretation Barnum understood the fundamental truth about attracting attention. Once people's eyes are on you, you have a special legitimacy. For Barnum, creating interest meant creating a crowd, 
As he later wrote, every crowd has a silver lining. At the beginning of your rise to the top, then, spend all your energy on attracting attention. Most important, the quality of the attention is irrelevant, no matter how badly his shows were reviewed or how slanderously personal were the attacks on his hoaxes. Barnum would never complain. If a newspaper critic reviled him particularly badly, in fact, he made sure to invite the man to an opening and to give him the best seat in the house. He would even write anonymous attacks on his own work, just to keep his name in the papers. From Barnum's vantage, attention, whether negative or positive, was the main ingredient of his success. The worst fate in the world for a man who yearns fame, glory, and of course power, is to be ignored. Keys to Power Burning more brightly than those around you is a skill that no one is born with. You have to learn to attract attention as surely as the lodestone attracts iron. At the start of your career, you must attach your name and reputation to a quality, an image, that sets you apart from other people. This image can be something like a characteristic style of dress or a personality quirk that amuses people and gets talked about. Once the image is established, you have an appearance, a place in the sky for your star. It is a common mistake to imagine that this peculiar appearance of yours should not be controversial, that to be attacked is somehow bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. To avoid being a flash in the pan and having your notoriety eclipsed by another, you must not discriminate between different types of attention. In the end, every kind will work in your favor. Once in the limelight, you must constantly renew it by adapting and varying your method of courting attention. If you don't, the public will grow tired, will take you for granted, and will move on to a newer star. The game requires constant vigilance and creativity. Part 2. Create an Air of Mystery In a world growing increasingly banal and familiar, what seems enigmatic instantly draws attention. Never make it too clear what you are doing or about to do. Do not show all your cards. An air of mystery heightens your presence. It also creates anticipation. Everyone will be watching you to see what happens next. Use mystery to beguile, seduce, even frighten. Observance of the Law Beginning in 1905, rumors started to spread throughout Paris of a young Oriental girl who danced in a private home, wrapped in veils that she gradually discarded. A local journalist who had seen her dancing reported that a woman from the Far East had come to Europe laden with perfume and jewels to introduce some of the richness of the Oriental color and life into the satiated society of European cities. Soon, everyone knew the dancer's name, Mata Hari. Early that year, in the winter, small and select audiences would gather in a salon filled with Indian statues and other relics while an orchestra played music inspired by Hindu and Javanese melodies. After keeping the audience waiting and wondering, Mata Hari would suddenly appear in a startling costume 
a white cotton brassiere covered with Indian-type jewels, jeweled bands at the waist supporting a sarong that revealed as much as it concealed, bracelets up the arms. Then Matahari would dance, in a style no one in France had seen before, her whole body swaying as if she were in a trance. She told her excited and curious audience that her dances told stories from Indian mythology and Javanese folktales. Soon, the cream of Paris, ambassadors from far-off lands were competing for invitations to the salon, where it was rumored that Matahari was actually performing sacred dances in the nude. The public wanted to know more about her. She told journalists that she was actually Dutch in origin, but had grown up on the island of Java. She would also talk about time spent in India, how she had learned sacred Hindu dances there, and how Indian women can shoot straight, ride horseback, and are capable of doing logarithms and talk philosophy. By the summer of 1905, although few Parisians had actually seen Matahari dance, her name was on everyone's lips. As Matahari gave more interviews, the story of her origins kept changing. She had grown up in India. Her grandmother was the daughter of a Javanese princess. She had lived on the island of Sumatra, where she had spent her time horseback riding, gun in hand, and risking her life. No one knew anything certain about her, but journalists did not mind these changes in her biography. They compared her to an Indian goddess, a creature from the pages of Baudelaire. Whatever their imagination wanted to see in this mysterious woman from the East. In August of 1905, Matahari performed for the first time in public. Crowds thronging to see her on opening night caused a riot. She had now become a cult figure, spawning many imitations. One reviewer wrote, Matahari personifies all the poetry of India, its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its hypnotizing charm. Another noted, if India possesses such unexpected treasures, then all Frenchmen will emigrate to the shores of the Ganges. Soon, the fame of Matahari and her sacred Indian dances spread beyond Paris. She was invited to Berlin, Vienna, Milan. Over the next few years, she performed throughout Europe, mixed with the highest social circles, and earned an income that gave her an independence rarely enjoyed by a woman of the period. Then, near the end of World War I, she was arrested in France, tried, convicted, and finally executed as a German spy. Only during the trial did the truth come out. Matahari was not from Java or India, had not grown up in the Orient, did not have a drop of Eastern blood in her body. Her real name was Margarethe Zell, and she came from the stolid northern province of Friesland, Holland. Interpretation When Margarethe Zell arrived in Paris in 1904, she had half a franc in her pocket. She was one of the thousands of beautiful young girls who flocked to Paris every year, taking work as artists' models, nightclub dancers, or vaudeville performers at the Follies Bergère. After a few years, they would inevitably be replaced by younger girls and would often end up on the streets, turning to prostitution or else returning to the town they came from, older and chastened. Zell had higher ambitions. 
She had no dance experience and had never performed in the theater, but as a young girl, she had traveled with her family and had witnessed local dances in Java and Sumatra. Zell clearly understood that what was important in her act was not the dance itself, or even her face or figure, but her ability to create an air of mystery about herself. The mystery she created lay not just in her dancing, or her costumes, or the stories she would tell, or her endless lies about her origins. It lay in an atmosphere enveloping everything she did. There was nothing you could say for sure about her. She was always changing, always surprising her audience with new costumes, new dances, new stories. This air of mystery left the public always wanting to know more, always wondering about her next move. Malahari was no more beautiful than many of the other young girls who came to Paris, and she was not a particularly good dancer. What separated her from the mass, what attracted and held the public's attention and made her famous and wealthy, was her mystery. People are enthralled by mystery because it invites constant interpretation. They never tire of it. The mysterious cannot be grasped, and what cannot be seized and consumed creates power. Keys to Power In a world that is ever more banal, that has had its mystery and myths squeezed out of it, we secretly crave enigmas, people or things that cannot be instantly interpreted, seized, and consumed. That is the power of the mysterious. It invites layers of interpretation, excites our imagination, seduces us into believing that it conceals something marvelous. The world has become so familiar and its inhabitants so predictable that what wraps itself in mystery will almost always draw the limelight to it and make us watch it. Do not imagine that to create an air of mystery, you have to be grand and awe-inspiring. Mystery that is woven into your day-to-day -day demeanor and is subtle has that much more power to fascinate and attract attention. Remember, most people are up front, can be read like an open book, take little care to control their words or image, and are hopelessly predictable. By simply holding back, keeping silent, occasionally uttering ambiguous phrases, deliberately appearing inconsistent, and acting odd in the subtlest of ways, you will emanate an aura of mystery. The people around you will then magnify that aura by constantly trying to interpret you. Mysterious people put others in a kind of inferior position, that of trying to figure them out. To degrees that they can control, they also elicit the fear surrounding anything uncertain or unknown. All great leaders know that an aura of mystery draws attention to them and creates an intimidating presence. If your social position prevents you from completely wrapping your actions in mystery, you must, at least, learn to make yourself less obvious. Every now and then, Act in a way that does not mesh with other people's perception of you. This way, you keep those around you on the defensive, eliciting the kind of attention that makes you powerful. Law 7. Get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Judgment. 
Use the wisdom, knowledge, and legwork of other people to further your own cause. Not only will such assistance save you valuable time and energy, it will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten and you will be remembered. Never do yourself what others can do for you. Transgression and Observance of the Law In 1883, a young Serbian scientist named Nikola Tesla was working for the European Division of the Continental Edison Company. He was a brilliant inventor, and Charles Batchelor, a plant manager and a personal friend of Thomas Edison, persuaded him he should seek his fortune in America, giving him a letter of introduction to Edison himself. So began a life of woe and tribulation that lasted until Tesla's death. When Tesla met Edison in New York, the famous inventor hired him on the spot. Tesla worked 18-hour days, finding ways to improve the primitive Edison dynamos. Finally, he offered to redesign them completely. To Edison, this seemed a monumental task that could last years without paying off. But he told Tesla, there's $50,000 in it for you, if you can do it. Tesla labored day and night on the project, and after only a year, he produced a greatly improved version of the dynamo, complete with automatic controls. He went to Edison to break the good news and receive his $50,000. Edison was pleased with the improvement, for which he and his company would take credit. But when it came to the issue of the money, he told the young Serb, Tesla, you don't understand our American humor, and offered a small raise instead. Tesla's obsession was to create an alternating current system, AC, of electricity. Edison believed in the direct current system, DC, and not only refused to support Tesla's research, but later did all he could to sabotage him. Tesla turned to the great Pittsburgh magnate George Westinghouse, who had started his own electricity company. Westinghouse completely funded Tesla's research and offered him a generous royalty agreement on future profits. The AC system Tesla developed is still the standard today. But after patents were filed in his name, other scientists came forward to take credit for the invention, claiming that they had laid the groundwork for him. His name was lost in the shuffle, and the public came to associate the invention with Westinghouse himself. A year later, Westinghouse was caught in a takeover bid from J. Pierpont Morgan, who made him rescind the generous royalty contract he had signed with Tesla. Westinghouse explained to the scientist that his company would not survive if it had to pay him his full royalties. He persuaded Tesla to accept a buyout of his patents for $216,000. A large sum, no doubt, but far less than the $12 million they were worth at the time. The financiers had divested Tesla of the riches, the patents, and essentially the credit for the greatest invention of his career. The name of Guglielmo Marconi is forever linked with the invention of radio. But few know that in producing his invention, he broadcast a signal across the English Channel in 1899. Marconi made use of a patent Tesla had filed in 1897, and that his work depended on Tesla's research. 
Once again, Tesla received no money and no credit. Tesla invented an induction motor as well as the AC power system, and he is the real father of radio. Yet, none of these discoveries bear his name. As an old man, he lived in poverty. In 1917, during his later impoverished years, Tesla was told he was to receive the Edison Medal of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. He turned the medal down. You propose, he said, to honor me with a medal which I could pin upon my coat and strut for a vain hour before the members of your institute. You would decorate my body and continue to let starve for failure to supply recognition, my mind and its creative products, which have supplied the foundation upon which the major portion of your institute exists. Interpretation Many harbor the illusion that science, dealing with facts as it does, is beyond the petty rivalries that trouble the rest of the world. Nikola Tesla was one of those. He believed science had nothing to do with politics and claimed not to care for fame and riches. As he grew older, though, this ruined his scientific work. Not associated with any particular discovery, he could attract no investors to his many ideas. While he pondered great inventions for the future, others stole the patents he had already developed and got the glory for themselves. He wanted to do everything on his own, but merely exhausted and impoverished himself in the process. Edison was Tesla's polar opposite. He wasn't actually much of a scientific thinker or inventor. He once said that he had no need to be a mathematician because he could always hire one. That was Edison's main method. He was really a businessman and publicist spotting the trends and the opportunities that were out there, then hiring the best in the field to do the work for him. If he had to, he would steal from his competitors. Yet his name is much better known than Tesla's and is associated with more inventions. The lesson is twofold. First, the credit for an invention or creation is as important, if not more important, than the invention itself. You must secure the credit for yourself and keep others from stealing it away or from piggybacking on your hard work. To accomplish this, you must always be vigilant and ruthless, keeping your creation quiet until you can be sure there are no vultures circling overhead. Second, learn to take advantage of other people's work to further your own cause. Time is precious and life is short. If you try to do it all on your own, you run yourself ragged, waste energy, and burn yourself out. It is far better to conserve your forces, pounce on the work others have done, and find a way to make it your own. Keys to Power This is the essence of the law. Learn to get others to do the work for you while you take the credit and you appear to be of godlike strength and power. If you think it important to do all the work yourself, you will never get far, and you will suffer the fate of the Teslas of the world. Find people with the skills and creativity you lack. Either hire them while putting your own name on top of theirs, or find a way to take their work and make it your own. Their creativity thus becomes yours, and you seem a genius to the world. Law 8. 
Make other people come to you. Use bait, if necessary. Judgment. When you force the other person to act, you are the one in control. It is always better to make your opponent come to you, abandoning his own plans in the process. Lure him with fabulous gains. Then attack. You hold the cards. Observance of the Law At the Congress of Vienna in 1814, the major powers of Europe gathered to carve up the remains of Napoleon's fallen empire. The city was full of gaiety, and the balls were the most splendid in memory. Hovering over the proceedings, however, was the shadow of Napoleon himself. Instead of being executed or exiled far away, he had been sent to the island of Elba, not far from the coast of Italy. Even imprisoned on an island, a man as bold and creative as Napoleon Bonaparte made everyone nervous. The Austrians plotted to kill him on Elba, but decided it was too risky. Alexander I, Russia's temperamental czar, heightened the anxiety by throwing a fit during the Congress when a part of Poland was denied him. Beware, I shall loose the monster, he threatened. Everyone knew he meant Napoleon. Of all the statesmen gathered in Vienna, only Talleyrand, Napoleon's former foreign minister, seemed calm and unconcerned. It was as if he knew something the others did not. Meanwhile, on the island of Elba, Napoleon's life was a mockery of his previous glory. As Elba's king, he had been allowed to form a court. There was a cook, a wardrobe mistress, an official pianist, and a handful of courtiers. All this was designed to humiliate Napoleon, and it seemed to work. That winter, however, there occurred a series of events so strange and dramatic they might have been scripted in a play. Elba was surrounded by British ships, their cannons covering all possible exit points. Yet somehow, in broad daylight, on 26 February 1815, a ship with 900 men on board picked up Napoleon and put to sea. The English gave chase, but the ship got away. This almost impossible escape astonished the public throughout Europe and terrified the statesmen at the Congress of Vienna. Although it would have been safer to leave Europe, Napoleon not only chose to return to France, he raised the odds by marching on Paris with a tiny army in hopes of recapturing the throne. His strategy worked. People of all classes threw themselves at his feet. An army under Marshal Ney sped from Paris to arrest him, but when the soldiers saw their beloved former leader, they changed sides. Napoleon was declared emperor again. Volunteers swelled the ranks of his new army. Delirium swept the country. In Paris, crowds went wild. The king who had replaced Napoleon fled the country. For the next hundred days, Napoleon ruled France. Soon, however, the giddiness subsided. France was bankrupt, its resources nearly exhausted, and there was little Napoleon could do about this. At the Battle of Waterloo in June of that year, he was finally defeated for good. This time, his enemies had learned their lesson. They exiled him to the barren island of St. Helena off the west coast of Africa. 
There, he had no more hope of escape. Interpretation Only years later did the facts of Napoleon's dramatic escape from Elba come to light. Before he decided to attempt this bold move, visitors to his court had told him that he was more popular in France than ever and that the country would embrace him again. One of these visitors was Austria's General Kohler, who convinced Napoleon that if he escaped, the European powers, England included, would welcome him back into power. Napoleon was tipped off that the English would let him go, and indeed his escape occurred in the middle of the afternoon in full view of English spyglasses. What Napoleon did not know was that there was a man behind it all, pulling the strings, and that this man was his former minister, Talleyrand. And Talleyrand was doing all this, not to bring back the glory days, but to crush Napoleon once and for all. Considering the emperor's ambition, unsettling to Europe's stability, he had turned against him long ago. When Napoleon was exiled to Elba, Talleyrand had protested. Napoleon should be sent farther away, he argued, or Europe would never have peace. But no one listened. Instead of pushing his opinion, Talleyrand bided his time. Working quietly, he eventually won over Castlereagh and Metternich, the foreign ministers of England and Austria. Together, these men baited Napoleon into escaping. Even Kohler's visit to whisper the promise of glory in the exile's ear was part of the plan. Like a master card player, Talleyrand figured everything out in advance. He knew Napoleon would fall into the trap he had set. He also foresaw that Napoleon would lead the country into a war which, given France's weakened condition, could only last a few months. One diplomat in Vienna, who understood that Talleyrand was behind it all, said, He has set the house ablaze in order to save it from the plague. Keys to Power How many times has this scenario played itself out in history? An aggressive leader initiates a series of bold moves that begin by bringing him much power. Slowly, however, his power reaches a peak, and soon everything turns against him. His numerous enemies band together, trying to maintain his power. He exhausts himself going in this direction and that, and inevitably he collapses. The reason for this pattern is that the aggressive person is rarely in full control. He cannot see more than a couple of moves ahead, cannot see the consequences of this bold move or that one, because he is constantly being forced to react to the moves of his ever-growing host of enemies and to the unforeseen consequences of his own rash actions, his aggressive energy is turned against him. In the realm of power, you must ask yourself, what is the point of chasing here and there, trying to solve problems and defeat my enemies if I never feel in control? Why am I always having to react to events instead of directing them? The answer is simple. Your idea of power is wrong. You have mistaken aggressive action for effective action. And most often, the most effective action is to stay back, keep calm, and let others be frustrated by the traps you lay for them, playing for long-term power rather than quick victory. Remember, the essence of power is the ability to keep the initiative, to get others to react to your moves, 
to keep your opponent and those around you on the defensive. When you make other people come to you, you suddenly become the one controlling the situation, and the one who has control has power. Two things must happen to place you in this position. You yourself must learn to master your emotions and never to be influenced by anger. Meanwhile, however, you must play on people's natural tendency to react angrily when pushed and baited. In the long run, the ability to make others come to you is a weapon far more powerful than any tool of aggression. Manipulation is a dangerous game. Once someone suspects he is being manipulated, it becomes harder and harder to control him. But when you make your opponent come to you, you create the illusion that he is controlling the situation. He does not feel the strings that pull him, just as Napoleon imagined that he himself was the master of his daring escape and return to power. Law 9. Win through your actions, never through argument. Judgment. Any momentary triumph you think you have gained through argument is really a pyrrhic victory. The resentment and ill will you stir up is stronger and lasts longer than any momentary change of opinion. It is much more powerful to get others to agree with you through your actions without saying a word. Demonstrate. Do not explicate. Observance of the Law in 1502, in Florence, Italy, an enormous block of marble stood in the works department of the Church of Santa Maria del Fiore. It had once been a magnificent piece of raw stone, but an unskilled sculptor had mistakenly bored a hole through it where there should have been a figure's legs, generally mutilating it. Piero Sarrini. Florence's mayor had contemplated trying to save the block by commissioning Leonardo da Vinci to work on it, or some other master, but had given up, since everyone agreed that the stone had been ruined. So, despite the money that had been wasted on it, it gathered dust in the dark halls of the church. This was where things stood until some Florentine friends of the great Michelangelo decided to write to the artist then living in Rome. He alone, they said, could do something with the marble, which was still magnificent raw material. Michelangelo traveled to Florence, examined the stone, and came to the conclusion that he could, in fact, carve a fine figure from it by adapting the pose to the way the rock had been mutilated. Sutterini argued that this was a waste of time. Nobody could salvage such a disaster, but he finally agreed to let the artist work on it. Michelangelo decided he would depict a young David, sling in hand. Weeks later, as Michelangelo was putting the final touches on the statue, Sutterini entered the studio. Fancying himself a bit of a connoisseur, he studied the huge work, and told Michelangelo that while he thought it was magnificent, the nose, he judged, was too big. Michelangelo realized that Sonnerini was standing in a place right under the giant figure and did not have the proper perspective. Without a word, he gestured for Sonnerini to follow him up the scaffolding. Reaching the nose, he picked up his chisel as well as a bit of marble dust that lay on the planks. 
With Soderini just a few feet below him on the scaffolding, Michelangelo started to tap lightly with the chisel, letting the bits of dust he had gathered in his hand to fall little by little. He actually did nothing to change the nose, but gave every appearance of working on it. After a few minutes of the charade, he stood aside. Look at it now. I like it better, replied Soderini. You've made it come alive. Interpretation Michelangelo knew that by changing the shape of the nose, he might ruin the entire sculpture. Yet Soderini was a patron who prided himself on his aesthetic judgment. To offend such a man by arguing would not only gain Michelangelo nothing, it would put future commissions in jeopardy. Michelangelo was too clever to argue. His solution was to change Soderini's perspective, literally bringing him closer to the nose, without making him realize that this was the cause of his misperception. Fortunately for posterity, Michelangelo found a way to keep the perfection of the statue intact, while, at the same time, making Soderini believe he had improved it. Such is the double power of winning through actions rather than argument. No one is offended, and your point is proven. Keys to Power In the realm of power, you must learn to judge your moves by their long-term effects on other people. The problem in trying to prove a point or gain a victory through argument is that, in the end, you can never be certain how it affects the people you're arguing with. They may appear to agree with you politely, but inside they may resent you. Or perhaps something you said inadvertently even offended them. Words have that insidious ability to be interpreted according to the other person's mood and insecurities. Even the best argument has no solid foundation, for we have all come to distrust the slippery nature of words. And days after agreeing with someone, we often revert to our old opinion out of sheer habit. Understand this. Words are a dime a dozen. Everyone knows that in the heat of an argument, we will all say anything to support our cause. We will quote the Bible, refer to unverifiable statistics. Who can be persuaded by bags of air like that? Action and demonstration are much more powerful and meaningful. They are there before our eyes for us to see. Yes, now the statue's nose does look just right. There are no offensive words, no possibility of misinterpretation. No one can argue with a demonstrated proof. As Balthazar Gracian remarks, the truth is generally seen rarely heard. Law 10. Infection. Avoid the unhappy and unlucky. Judgment. You can die from someone else's misery. Emotional states are as infectious as diseases. You may feel you are helping the drowning man, but you are only precipitating your own disaster. The unfortunate sometimes draw misfortune on themselves. They will also draw it on you. Associate with the happy and fortunate instead. Transgression of the Law Born in Limerick, Ireland in 1818, Marie Gilbert came to Paris in the 1840s to make her fortune as a dancer and performer. Taking the name Lola Montez, her mother was of distant Spanish descent. 
She claimed to be a flamenco dancer from Spain. By 1845, her career was languishing, and to survive, she became a courtesan, quickly one of the more successful in Paris. Only one man could salvage Lola's dancing career, Alexandre Dujarrier, owner of the newspaper with the largest circulation in France, and also the newspaper's drama critic. She decided to woo and conquer him. Investigating his habits, she discovered that he went riding every morning. An excellent horsewoman herself, she rode out one morning and accidentally ran into him. Soon they were riding together every day. A few weeks later, Lola moved into his apartment. For a while, the two were happy together. With Dujarrier's help, Lola began to revive her dancing career. Despite the risk to his social standing, Dujarrier told friends he would marry her in the spring. Lola had never told him that she had eloped at age 19 with an Englishman and was still legally married. Although Dujarrier was deeply in love, his life started to slide downhill. His fortunes in business changed and influential friends began to avoid him. One night, Dujarrier was invited to a party attended by some of the wealthiest young men in Paris. Lola wanted to go too, but he would not allow it. They had their first quarrel, and Dujarrier attended the party by himself. There, hopelessly drunk, he insulted an influential drama critic, Jean-Baptiste Rosemont de Beauvillon, perhaps because of something the critic had said about Lola. The following morning, Beauvillon challenged him to a duel, Beauvillon was one of the best pistol shots in France. Dujarrier tried to apologize, but the duel took place, and he was shot and killed. Thus ended the life of one of the most promising young men of Paris society. Devastated, Lola left Paris. In 1846, Lola Montez found herself in Munich, where she decided to woo and conquer King Ludwig of Bavaria. The best way to Ludwig, she discovered, was through his aide-de-camp, Count Otto von Reckberg, a man with a fondness for pretty girls. One day, when the Count was breakfasting at an outdoor café, Lola rode by on her horse, was accidentally thrown from the saddle, and landed at Reckberg's feet. The Count rushed to help her and was enchanted. He promised to introduce her to Ludwig. Reckberg arranged an audience with the king for Lola, but when she arrived in the anteroom, she could hear the king saying he was too busy to meet a favor-seeking stranger. Lola pushed aside the sentries and entered his room anyway. In the process, the front of her dress somehow got torn, perhaps by her, perhaps by one of the sentries, and to the astonishment of all, most especially the king, her bare breasts were brazenly exposed. Lola was granted her audience with Ludwig. Fifty-five hours later, she made her debut on the Bavarian stage. The reviews were terrible, but that did not stop Ludwig from arranging more performances. Ludwig was, in his own words, bewitched by Lola. He started to appear in public with her on his arm, and then he bought and furnished an apartment for her on one of Munich's most fashionable boulevards. Although he had been known as a miser and was not given to flights of fancy, he started to shower Lola with gifts and to write poetry for her. 
now his favored mistress, she catapulted to fame and fortune overnight. Lola began to lose her sense of proportion. One day, when she was out riding, an elderly man rode ahead of her, a bit too slowly for her liking. Unable to pass him, she began to slash him with her riding crop. On another occasion, she took her dog, unleashed, out for a stroll. The dog attacked a passerby, but instead of helping the man get the dog away, she whipped him with the leash. Incidents like this infuriated the stolid citizens of Bavaria, but Ludwig stood by Lola and even had her naturalized as a Bavarian citizen. The king's entourage tried to wake him to the dangers of the affair, but those who criticized Lola were summarily fired. While Bavarians who had loved their king now outwardly disrespected him, Lola was made a countess, had a new palace built for herself, and began to dabble in politics, advising Ludwig on policy. She was the most powerful force in the kingdom. Her influence in the king's cabinet continued to grow, and she treated the other ministers with disdain. As a result, riots broke out throughout the realm. A once peaceful land was virtually in the grip of civil war, and students everywhere were chanting, Raus mit Lola! By February of 1848, Ludwig was finally unable to withstand the pressure. With great sadness, he ordered Lola to leave Bavaria immediately. She left, but not until she was paid off. For the next five weeks, the Bavarians' wrath was turned against their formerly beloved king. In March of that year, he was forced to abdicate. Lola Montez moved to England. More than anything, she needed respectability, and despite being married, she still had not arranged a divorce from the Englishman she had wed years before. She set her sights on George Trafford Heald, a promising young army officer who was the son of an influential barrister. Although he was ten years younger than Lola and could have chosen a wife among the prettiest and wealthiest young girls of English society, Heald fell under her spell. They were married in 1849. Soon, arrested on the charge of bigamy, she skipped bail and she and Heald made their way to Spain. They quarreled horribly, and on one occasion Lola slashed him with a knife. Finally, she drove him away. Returning to England, he found he had lost his position in the army. Ostracized from English society, he moved to Portugal, where he lived in poverty. After a few months, his short life ended in a boating accident. A few years later, the man who published Lola Montez's autobiography went bankrupt. In 1853, Lola moved to California, where she met and married a man named Pat Hull. Their relationship was as stormy as all the others, and she left Hull for another man. He took to drink and fell into a deep depression that lasted until he died, four years later, still a relatively young man. At the age of 41, Lola gave away her clothes and finery and turned to God. She toured America lecturing on religious topics, dressed in white and wearing a halo-like white headgear. She died two years later, in 1861. Interpretation Lola Montez attracted men with her wiles, but her power over them went beyond the sexual. 
It was through the force of her character that she kept her lovers enthralled. Men were sucked into the maelstrom she churned up around her. They felt confused, upset, but the strength of the emotions she stirred also made them feel more alive. As is often the case with infection, the problems would only arise over time. Lola's inherent instability would begin to get under her lover's skin. They would find themselves drawn into her problems, but their emotional attachment to her would make them want to help her. This was the crucial point of the disease, for Lola Montez could not be helped. Her problems were too deep. Once the lover identified with them, he was lost. He would find himself embroiled in quarrels. The infection would spread to his family and friends, or, in the case of Ludwig, to an entire nation. You could spend a lifetime studying the pathology of infecting characters, but don't waste your time. Just learn the lesson. When you suspect you are in the presence of an infector, don't argue, don't try to help, don't pass the person on to your friends, or you will become enmeshed. Flee the infector's presence or suffer the consequences. Keys to Power Those misfortunates among us who have been brought down by circumstances beyond their control deserve all the help and sympathy we can give them. But there are others who were not born to misfortune or unhappiness, but who draw it upon themselves by their destructive actions and unsettling effect on others. It would be a great thing if we could raise them up, change their patterns. But more often than not, it is their patterns that end up getting inside and changing us. The incurably unhappy and unstable have a particularly strong infecting power because their characters and emotions are so intense. They often present themselves as victims, making it difficult, at first, to see their miseries as self-inflicted. Before you realize the real nature of their problems, you have been infected by them. Understand this. In the game of power, the people you associate with are critical. The risk of associating with infectors is that you will waste valuable time and energy trying to free yourself. Through a kind of guilt by association, you will also suffer in the eyes of others. Never underestimate the dangers of infection. Law 11. Learn to keep people dependent on you. Judgment. To maintain your independence, you must always be needed and wanted. The more you are relied on, the more freedom you have. Make people depend on you for their happiness and prosperity, and you have nothing to fear. Never teach them enough so that they can do without you. Observance of the Law When Otto von Bismarck became a deputy in the Prussian parliament in 1847, he was 32 years old and without an ally or friend. Looking around him, he decided that the side to ally himself with was not the parliament's liberals or conservatives, not any particular minister, and certainly not the people. It was with the king, Frederick William IV. This was an odd choice, to say the least, for Frederick was at a low point of his power. A weak, indecisive man, he consistently gave in to the liberals in Parliament. In fact, he was spineless, and stood for much that Bismarck disliked personally and politically. 
Yet, Bismarck courted Frederick night and day. When other deputies attacked the king for his many inept moves, only Bismarck stood by him. Finally, it all paid off. In 1851, Bismarck was made a minister in the king's cabinet. Now he went to work. Time and again, he forced the king's hand, getting him to build up the military, to stand up to the liberals, to do exactly as Bismarck wished. He worked on Frederick's insecurity about his manliness, challenging him to be firm and to rule with pride. And he slowly restored the king's powers until the monarchy was once again the most powerful force in Prussia. When Frederick died in 1861, his brother William assumed the throne. William disliked Bismarck intensely and had no intention of keeping him around. But he also inherited the same situation his brother had enemies galore who wanted to nibble his power away. He actually considered abdicating, feeling he lacked the strength to deal with this dangerous and precarious position. But Bismarck insinuated himself once again. He stood by the new king, gave him strength, and urged him into firm and decisive action. The king grew dependent on Bismarck's strong-arm tactics to keep his enemies at bay. And despite his antipathy toward the man, he soon made him his prime minister. The two quarreled often over policy. Bismarck was much more conservative, but the king understood his own dependency. Whenever the prime minister threatened to resign, the king gave in to him time after time. It was, in fact, Bismarck who set state policy. Years later, Bismarck's actions as Prussia's prime minister led the various German states to be united into one country. Now, Bismarck finagled the king into letting himself be crowned Emperor of Germany. Yet it was really Bismarck who had reached the heights of power. As right-hand man to the emperor and as imperial chancellor and knighted prince, he pulled all the levers. Interpretation most young and ambitious politicians looking out on the political landscape of 1840s Germany would have tried to build a power base among those with the most power. Bismarck saw different. Joining forces with the powerful can be foolish. They will swallow you up. No one will come to depend on you if they are already strong. If you are ambitious, it is much wiser to seek out weak rulers or masters with whom you can create a relationship of dependency. You become their strength, their intelligence, their spine. What power you hold. If they got rid of you, the whole edifice would collapse. Necessity rules the world. People rarely act unless compelled to. If you create no need for yourself, then you will be done away with at first opportunity. If, on the other hand, you understand the laws of power and make others depend on you for their welfare, if you can counteract their weakness with your own iron and blood, in Bismarck's phrase, then you will survive your masters as Bismarck did. You will have all the benefits of power without the thorns that come from being a master. Keys to Power the ultimate power is the power to get people to do as you wish. When you can do this without having to force people or hurt them, when they willingly grant you what you desire, then your power is untouchable. 
The best way to achieve this position is to create a relationship of dependence. The master requires your services. He is weak or unable to function without you. You have enmeshed yourself in his work so deeply that doing away with you would bring him great difficulty or at least would mean valuable time lost in training another to replace you. Once such a relationship is established, you have the upper hand, the leverage to make the master do as you wish. It is the classic case of the man behind the throne, the servant of the king who actually controls the king. Do not be one of the many who mistakenly believe that the ultimate form of power is independence. Power involves a relationship between people. You will always need others as allies, pawns, or even as weak masters who serve as your front. The completely independent man would live in a cabin in the woods. He would have the freedom to come and go as he pleased, but he would have no power. The best you can hope for is that others will grow so dependent on you that you enjoy a kind of reverse independence. Their need for you frees you. One last warning. Do not imagine that your master's dependence on you will make him love you. In fact, he may resent and fear you. But as Machiavelli said, it is better to be feared than loved. Fear you can control. Love? Never. Depending on an emotion as subtle and changeable as love or friendship will only make you insecure. Better to have others depend on you out of fear of the consequences of losing you than out of love of your company. Law 12. Use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim. Judgment. One sincere and honest move will cover over dozens of dishonest ones. Open-hearted gestures of honesty and generosity bring down the guard of even the most suspicious people. Once your selective honesty opens a hole in their armor, you can deceive and manipulate them at will. A timely gift, a Trojan horse, will serve the same purpose. Observance of the Law Sometime in 1926, a tall, dapperly dressed man paid a visit to Al Capone, the most feared gangster of his time. Speaking with an elegant continental accent, the man introduced himself as Count Victor Lustig. He promised that if Capone gave him $50,000, he could double it. Capone had more than enough funds to cover the investment, but he wasn't in the habit of entrusting large sums to total strangers. He looked the count over. Something about the man was different. His classy style, his manner... And so Capone decided to play along. He counted out the bills personally and handed them to Lustig. Okay, Count, said Capone. Double it in 60 days, like he said. Lustig left with the money, put it in a safe deposit box in Chicago, then headed to New York, where he had several other money-making schemes in progress. 
The $50,000 remained in the bank box untouched. Lustig made no effort to double it. Two months later, he returned to Chicago, took the money from the box, and paid Capone another visit. He looked at the gangster's stony-faced bodyguards, smiled apologetically, and said, Please accept my profound regrets, Mr. Capone. I'm sorry to report that the plan failed. I failed. Capone slowly stood up. He glowered at Lustig, debating which part of the river to throw him in. But the Count reached into his coat pocket, withdrew the $50,000, and placed it on the desk. Here, sir, is your money, to the penny. Again, my sincere apologies. This is most embarrassing. Things didn't work out the way I thought they would. I would have loved to have doubled your money for you, and for myself. Lord knows I need it. But the plan just didn't materialize. Capone sagged back into his chair, confused. I know you're a con man, Count, said Capone. I knew it the moment you walked in here. I expected either $100,000 or nothing. But this, getting my money back, well. Again, my apologies, Mr. Capone, said Lustig, as he picked up his hat and began to leave. My God, you're honest, yelled Capone. If you're on the spot, here's five to help you along. He counted out five $1,000 bills out of the $50,000. The Count seemed stunned, bowed deeply, mumbled his thanks, and left, taking the money. The $5,000 was what Lustig had been after all along. Interpretation Count Victor Lustig, a man who spoke several languages and prided himself on his refinement and culture, was one of the great con artists of modern times. He was known for his audacity, his fearlessness, and, most important, his knowledge of human psychology. He could size up a man in minutes, discovering his weaknesses, and he had radar for suckers. Lustig knew that most men build up defenses against crooks and other troublemakers. The con artist's job is to bring those defenses down. One sure way to do this is through an act of apparent sincerity and honesty. Who will distrust a person literally caught in the act of being honest? Lustig used selective honesty many times, but with Capone, he went a step further. No normal con man would have dared such a con. He would have chosen his suckers for their meekness, for that look about them that says they will take their medicine without complaint. Con Capone and you would spend the rest of your life, whatever remained of it, afraid. But Lustig understood that a man like Capone spends his life mistrusting others. No one around him is honest or generous, and being so much in the company of wolves is exhausting, even depressing. A man like Capone yearns to be the recipient of an honest or generous gesture, to feel that not everyone has an angle or is out to rob him. Lustig's act of selective honesty disarmed Capone because it was so unexpected. A con artist loves conflicting emotions like these, since the person caught up in them is so easily distracted and deceived. Do not shy away from practicing this law on the Capones of the world. With a well-timed gesture of honesty or generosity, you will have the most brutal and cynical beast in the kingdom eating out of your hand. 
keys to power. The essence of deception is distraction. Distracting the people you want to deceive gives you the time and space to do something they won't notice. An act of kindness, generosity, or honesty is the most powerful form of distraction because it disarms other people's suspicions. It turns them into children, eagerly lapping up any kind of affectionate gesture. In ancient China, this was called giving before you take. The giving makes it hard for the other person to notice the taking. It is a device with infinite practical uses. Brazenly taking something from someone is dangerous, even for the powerful. The victim will plot revenge. It is also dangerous simply to ask for what you need, no matter how politely. Unless the other person sees some gain for themselves, they may come to resent your neediness. Learn to give before you take. It softens the ground, takes the bite out of a future request, or simply creates a distraction. And the giving can take many forms. An actual gift, a generous act, a kind favor, an honest admission, whatever it takes. Selective honesty is best employed on your first encounter with someone. We are all creatures of habit, and our first impressions last a long time. If someone believes you are honest at the start of your relationship, it takes a lot to convince them otherwise. This gives you room to maneuver. A single act of honesty is often not enough. What is required is a reputation for honesty built on a series of acts. But these can be quite inconsequential. Once this reputation is established, as with first impression, it is hard to shake. Selective kindness should also be part of your arsenal of deception. Selective kindness will often break down even the most stubborn foe. Aiming right for the heart, it corrodes the will to fight back. Remember, by playing on people's emotions, calculated acts of kindness can turn a capone into a gullible child. As with any emotional approach, the tactic must be practiced with caution. If people see through it, their disappointed feelings of gratitude and warmth will become the most violent hatred and distrust. Unless you can make the gesture seem sincere and heartfelt, do not play with fire. Law 13. When asking for help, appeal to people's self-interest, never to their mercy or gratitude. Judgment. If you need to turn to an ally for help, do not bother to remind him of your past assistance and good deeds. He will find a way to ignore you. Instead, uncover something in your request or in your alliance with him that will benefit him and emphasize it out of all proportion. He will respond enthusiastically when he sees something to be gained for himself. Observance of the Law In 433 B.C., just before the Peloponnesian War, the island of Corsira, later called Corfu, and the Greek city-state of Corinth stood on the brink of conflict. Both sides sent ambassadors to Athens to try to win over the Athenians to their side. The stakes were high, since whoever had Athens on his side was sure to win and whoever won the war would certainly give the defeated side no mercy. 
Corsira spoke first. Its ambassador began by admitting that the island had never helped Athens before, and in fact had allied itself with Athens' enemies. There were no ties of friendship or gratitude between Corsira and Athens. Yes, the ambassador admitted, he had come to Athens now out of fear and concern for Corsira's safety. The only thing he could offer was an alliance of mutual interests. Corsira had a navy only surpassed in size and strength by Athens' own. An alliance between the two states would create a formidable force, one that could intimidate the rival state of Sparta. That, unfortunately, was all Corsira had to offer. The representative from Corinth then gave a brilliant, passionate speech in sharp contrast to the dry, colorless approach of the Corsiran. He talked of everything Corinth had done for Athens in the past. He asked how it would look to Athens' other allies if the city put an agreement with a former enemy over one with a present friend, one that had served Athens' interest loyally. Perhaps those allies would break their agreements with Athens if they saw that their loyalty was not valued. He referred to Hellenic law and the need to repay Corinth for all its good deeds. He finally went on to list the many services Corinth had performed for Athens and the importance of showing gratitude to one's friends. After the speech, the Athenians debated the issue in an assembly. On the second round, they voted overwhelmingly to ally with Corsira and drop Corinth. Interpretation History has remembered the Athenians nobly, but they were the preeminent realists of classical Greece. With them, all the rhetoric, all the emotional appeals in the world could not match a good pragmatic argument, especially one that added to their power. What the Corinthian ambassador did not realize was that his references to Corinth's past generosity to Athens only irritated the Athenians, subtly asking them to feel guilty and putting them under obligation. The Athenians could care less about past favors and friendly feelings. At the same time, they knew that if their other allies thought them ungrateful for abandoning Corinth, these city-states would still be unlikely to break their ties to Athens, the preeminent power in Greece. Athens ruled its empire by force and would simply compel any rebellious ally to return to the fold. When people choose between talk about the past and talk about the future, a pragmatic person will always opt for the future and forget the past. As the Corsirans realized, it is always best to speak pragmatically to a pragmatic person. And in the end, most people are, in fact, pragmatic. They will rarely act against their own self-interest. Keys to Power in your quest for power, you will constantly find yourself in the position of asking for help from those more powerful than you. There is an art to asking for help, an art that depends on your ability to understand the person you are dealing with and to not confuse your needs with theirs. Most people never succeed at this because they are completely trapped in their own wants and desires. They start from the assumption that the people they are appealing to have a selfless interest in helping them. They talk as if their needs mattered to these people, who probably couldn't care less. 
Sometimes they refer to larger issues, a great cause, or grand emotions such as love and gratitude. They go for the big picture when simple, everyday realities would have much more appeal. What they do not realize is that even the most powerful person is locked inside needs of his own, and that if you make no appeal to his self-interest, he merely sees you as desperate or, at best, a waste of time. A key step in the process is to understand the other person's psychology. Is he vain? Is he concerned about his reputation or his social standing? Does he have enemies you could help him vanquish? Is he simply motivated by money and power? When the Mongols invaded China in the 12th century, they threatened to obliterate a culture that had thrived for over 2,000 years. Their leader, Genghis Khan, saw nothing in China but a country that lacked pasturing for his horses, and he decided to destroy the place, leveling all its cities, for it would be better to exterminate the Chinese and let the grass grow. It was not a soldier, a general, or a king who saved the Chinese from devastation, but a man named Yelu Chutsai, a foreigner himself, Chu Tsai had come to appreciate the superiority of Chinese culture. He managed to make himself a trusted advisor to Genghis Khan and persuaded him that he would reap riches out of the place if instead of destroying it, he simply taxed everyone who lived there. Khan saw the wisdom in this and did as Chu Tsai advised. When Khan took the city of Kaifeng, after a long siege and decided to massacre its inhabitants, as he had in other cities that had resisted him, Chu Tsai told him that the finest craftsmen and engineers in China had fled to Kaifeng, and it would be better to put them to use. Kaifeng was spared. Never before had Genghis Khan shown such mercy, but then it really wasn't mercy that saved Kaifeng. Chu Tsai knew Khan well. He was a barbaric peasant who cared nothing for culture or, indeed, for anything other than warfare and practical results. Chu Tsai chose to appeal to the only emotion that would work on such a man, greed. Self-interest is the lever that will move people. Once you make them see how you can in some way meet their needs or advance their cause, their resistance to your requests for help will magically fall away. At each step on the way to acquiring power, you must train yourself to think your way inside the other person's mind, to see their needs and interests, to get rid of the screen of your own feelings that obscure the truth. Master this art, and there will be no limits to what you can accomplish. Law 14. Pose as a friend, work as a spy. Judgment. Knowing about your rival is critical. Use spies to gather valuable information that will keep you a step ahead. Better still, play the spy yourself. In polite social encounters, learn to probe. Ask indirect questions to get people to reveal their weaknesses and intentions. There is no occasion that is not an opportunity for artful spying. Observance of the Law Joseph Devine was undoubtedly the greatest art dealer of his time. 
From 1904 to 1940, he almost single-handedly monopolized America's millionaire art collecting market. But one prize plum eluded him, the industrialist Andrew Mellon. Before he died, Duveen was determined to make Mellon a client. Duveen's friends said this was an impossible dream. Mellon was a stiff, taciturn man. The stories he had heard about the congenial, talkative Duveen rubbed him the wrong way. He had made it clear he had no desire to meet the man. Yet, Duveen told his doubting friends, not only will Mellon buy from me, but he will buy only from me. For several years, he tracked his prey, learning the man's habits, tastes, phobias. To do this, he secretly put several of Mellon's staff on his own payroll, worming valuable information out of them. By the time he moved into action, he knew Mellon about as well as Mellon's wife did. In 1921, Mellon was visiting London and staying in a palatial suite on the third floor of Claridge's Hotel. Duveen booked himself into the suite just below Mellon's on the second floor. He had arranged for his valet to befriend Mellon's valet, and on the fateful day he had chosen to make his move, Mellon's valet told Duveen's valet, who told Duveen, that he had just helped Mellon on with his overcoat and that the industrialist was making his way down the corridor to ring for the lift. Duveen's valet hurriedly helped Duveen with his own overcoat. Seconds later, Duveen entered the lift and, lo and behold, there was Mellon. How do you do, Mr. Mellon? said Duveen, introducing himself. I am on my way to the National Gallery to look at some pictures. How uncanny! That was precisely where Mellon was headed. And so Duveen was able to accompany his prey to the one location that would ensure his success. He knew Mellon's taste, inside and out, and while the two men wandered through the museum, he dazzled the magnate with his knowledge. Once again, quite uncannily, they seemed to have remarkably similar tastes. Mellon was pleasantly surprised. This wasn't the Duveen he had expected. The man was charming and agreeable, and clearly had exquisite taste. When they returned to New York, Mellon visited Duveen's exclusive gallery and fell in love with the collection. Everything, surprisingly enough, seemed to be precisely the kind of work he wanted to collect. For the rest of his life, he was Duveen's best and most generous client. Interpretation A man as ambitious and competitive as Joseph Duveen left nothing to chance. What's the point of winging it? or just hoping you may be able to charm this or that client. It's like shooting ducks blindfolded. Arm yourself with a little knowledge and your aim improves. Mellon was the most spectacular of Duveen's catches, but he spied on many a millionaire. By secretly putting members of his client's household staffs on his own payroll, he would gain constant access to valuable information about their master's comings and goings changes in taste, and other such tidbits of information that would put him a step ahead. A rival of Duveen's, who wanted to make Henry Frick a client, noticed that whenever he visited this wealthy New Yorker, Duveen was there before him, as if he had a sixth sense. To other dealers, Duveen seemed to be everywhere, and to know everything before they did. His powers discouraged and disheartened them, 
until many simply gave up going after the wealthy clients who could make a dealer rich. Such is the power of artful spying. It makes you seem all-powerful, clairvoyant. Your knowledge of your mark can also make you seem charming. So well can you anticipate their desires. No one sees the source of your power, and what they cannot see, they cannot fight. Keys to Power In the realm of power, your goal is a degree of control over future events. Part of the problem you face, then, is that people won't tell you all their thoughts, emotions, and plans. Carefully controlling what they say, they keep the most critical parts of their character hidden, their weaknesses, ulterior motives, obsessions. The result is that you cannot predict their moves and are constantly in the dark. The trick is to find a way to probe them, to find out their secrets and hidden intentions without letting them know what you are up to. This is not as difficult as you might think. A friendly front will let you secretly gather information on friends and enemies alike. Let others consult the horoscope or read tarot cards. You have more concrete means of seeing into the future. The most common way of spying is to use other people, as Duveen did. The method is simple, powerful, but risky. You will certainly gather information, but you have little control over the people who are doing the work. Perhaps they will ineptly reveal your spying or even secretly turn against you. It is far better to be the spy yourself, to pose as a friend while secretly gathering information. During social gatherings and innocuous encounters, pay attention. This is when people's guards are down. By suppressing your own personality, you can make them reveal things. The brilliance of the maneuver is that they will mistake your interest in them for friendship, so that you not only learn, you make allies. Nevertheless, you should practice this tactic with caution and care. If people begin to suspect you are worming secrets out of them under the cover of conversation, they will strictly avoid you. Emphasize friendly chatter not valuable information. Your search for gems of information cannot be too obvious, or your probing questions will reveal more about yourself and your intentions than about the information you hope to find. A trick to try in spying comes from La Rochefoucauld, who wrote, Sincerity is found in very few men, and is often the cleverest of ruses, one is sincere in order to draw out the confidence and secrets of the other. By pretending to bear your heart to another person, in other words, you make them more likely to reveal their own secrets. Give them a false confession, and they will give you a real one. Another trick was identified by the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who suggested vehemently contradicting people you're in conversation with as a way of irritating them stirring them up so that they lose some of the control over their words. In their emotional reaction, they will reveal all kinds of truths about themselves, truths you can later use against them. Another method of indirect spying is to test people, to lay little traps that make them reveal things about themselves. Kasroes II, a notoriously clever 7th-century king of the Persians, had many ways of seeing through his subjects without raising suspicion. 
If he noticed, for instance, that two of his courtiers had become particularly friendly, he would call one of them aside and say he had information that the other was a traitor and would soon be killed. The king would tell the courtier he trusted him more than anyone and that he must keep this information secret. Then he would watch the two men carefully. If he saw that the second courtier had not changed in his behavior toward the king, he would conclude that the first courtier had kept the secret, and he would quickly promote the man, later taking him aside to confess, I meant to kill your friend because of certain information that had reached me, but when I investigated the matter, I found it was untrue. If, on the other hand, the second courtier started to avoid the king, acting aloof and tense, Kosroes would know that the secret had been revealed. He would ban the second courtier from his court, letting him know that the whole business had only been a test, but that even though the man had done nothing wrong, he could no longer trust him. The first courtier, however, had revealed the secret, and him Kosroes would ban from his entire kingdom. It may seem an odd form of spying that reveals not empirical information, but a person's character. Often, however, it is the best way of solving problems before they arise. By tempting people into certain acts, you learn about their loyalty, their honesty, and so on. And this kind of knowledge is often the most valuable of all. Armed with it, you can predict their actions in the future. Law 15. Crush your enemy totally. Judgment. All great leaders since Moses have known that a feared enemy must be crushed completely. Sometimes they have learned this the hard way. If one ember is left alight, no matter how dimly it smolders, a fire will eventually break out. More is lost through stopping halfway than through total annihilation. The enemy will recover and will seek revenge. Crush him not only in body, but in spirit. Transgression of the Law No rivalry between leaders is more celebrated in Chinese history than the struggle between Xiang Yu and Liu Bang. These two generals began their careers as friends, fighting on the same side. Xiang Yu came from the nobility, large and powerful, given to bouts of violence and temper, a bit dull-witted. He was yet a mighty warrior who always fought at the head of his troops. Liu Bang came from peasant stock. He had never been much of a soldier and preferred women and wine to fighting. In fact, he was something of a scoundrel. But he was wily, and he had the ability to recognize the best strategists, keeping them as his advisors, and listen to their advice. He had risen in the army through these strengths. In 208 BC, the king of Chu sent two massive armies to conquer the powerful kingdom of Qin. One army went north, under the generalship of Sang Yi, with Xiang Yu second in command. The other, led by Liu Bang, headed straight toward Qin. The target was the kingdom's splendid capital, Xian Yang, and Xiang Yu ever violent and impatient, could not stand the idea that Liu Bang would get to Xian Yang first and perhaps would assume command of the entire army. 
At one point on the northern front, Xiong's commander, Sung Yi, hesitated in sending his troops into battle. Furious, Xiong entered Sung Yi's tent, proclaimed him a traitor, cut off his head, and assumed sole command of the army. Without waiting for orders, he left the northern front and marched directly on Xi'an Yang. He felt certain he was the better soldier and general than Li Yu, but to his utter astonishment, his rival, leading a smaller, swifter army, managed to reach Xi'an Yang first. Xiang had an advisor, Fan Tseng, who warned him, this village headman, Liu Bang, used to be greedy only for riches and women, but since entering the capital, he has not been led astray by wealth, wine, or sex. That shows he is aiming high. Fan Tseng urged Xiang to kill his rival before it was too late. He told the general to invite the wily peasant to a banquet at their camp outside Xianyang and, in the midst of a celebratory sword dance, to have his head cut off. The invitation was sent. Liu fell for the trap and came to the banquet. But Xiang hesitated in ordering the sword dance, and by the time he gave the signal, Liu had sensed a trap and managed to escape. Bah! cried Fan Sang in disgust, seeing that Shi Yong had botched the plot. One cannot plan with a simpleton. Liu Bang will steal your empire yet and make us all his prisoners. Realizing his mistake, Shi Yong hurriedly marched on Shi and Yang, this time determined to hack off his rival's head. Liu was never one to fight when the odds were against him, and he abandoned the city. Shi Yong captured Shi and Yang murdered the young prince of Qin, and burned the city to the ground. Liu was now Shi Yang's bitter enemy, and he pursued him for many months, finally cornering him in a walled city. Lacking food, his army in disarray, Liu sued for peace. Again, Fan Sang warned Shi Yang, Crush him now. If you let him go again, you will be sorry later. But Shi Yang decided to be merciful. He wanted to bring Liu back to Chu alive and to force his former friend to acknowledge him as master. But Fan proved right. Liu managed to use the negotiations for surrender as a distraction, and he escaped with a small army. Xiang, amazed that he had yet again let his rivals slip away, once more set out after Liu, this time with such ferocity that he seemed to have lost his mind. A few weeks later, in the thick of the hunt, Shi Yang scattered his forces unwisely, and in a surprise attack, Liu was able to surround his main garrison. For the first time, the tables were turned. Now, it was Shi Yang who sued for peace. Liu's top advisor urged him to destroy Shi Yang, crush his army, show no mercy. Making a false treaty, he lured Shi Yang into relaxing his defense, then slaughtered almost all of his army. Shi Yang managed to escape. Alone and on foot, knowing that Li Yu had put a bounty on his head, he came upon a small group of his own retreating soldiers and cried out, I hear Liu Bang has offered 1,000 pieces of gold and a fief of 10,000 families for my head. Let me do you a favor. Then he slit his own throat and died. Interpretation 
This is the fate that faces all of us when we sympathize with our enemies, when pity or the hope of reconciliation makes us pull back from doing away with them. We only strengthen their fear and hatred of us. We have beaten them and they are humiliated, yet we nurture these resentful vipers who will one day kill us. Power cannot be dealt with this way. It must be exterminated, crushed, and denied the chance to return to haunt us. This is all the truer with a former friend who has become an enemy. The law governing fatal antagonisms reads, Reconciliation is out of the question. Only one side can win, and it must win totally. Liu Bang learned this lesson well. After defeating Xiong Yu, this son of a farmer went on to become supreme commander of the armies of Chu. Crushing his next rival, the king of Chu, his own former leader, he crowned himself emperor, defeated everyone in his path, and went down in history as one of the greatest rulers of China, the immortal Hang Gao Tzu, founder of the Han Dynasty. Keys to Power It is no accident that the story illustrating this law comes from China. Chinese history abounds with examples of enemies who were left alive and returned to haunt the lenient. Crush the enemy is a key strategic tenet of Sun Tzu, the 4th century BC author of The Art of War. The idea is simple. Your enemies wish you ill. There is nothing they want more than to eliminate you. If, in your struggles with them, you stop halfway or even three-quarters of the way, out of mercy or hope of reconciliation. You only make them more determined, more embittered, and they will someday take revenge. They may act friendly for the time being, but this is only because you have defeated them. They have no choice but to bide their time. The solution? Have no mercy. Crush your enemies as totally as they would crush you. Ultimately, the only peace and security you can hope for from your enemies is their disappearance. Law 16. Use absence to increase respect and honor. Judgment. Too much circulation makes the price go down. The more you are seen and heard from, the more common you appear. If you are already established in a group, temporary withdrawal from it will make you more talked about, even more admired. You must learn when to leave, create value through scarcity. Observance of the Law For many centuries, the Assyrians ruled Upper Asia with an iron fist. In the 8th century BC, however, the people of Medea, now northwestern Iran, revolted against them and finally broke free. Now the Medes had to establish a new government. Determined to avoid any form of despotism, they refused to give ultimate power to any one man or to establish a monarchy. Without a leader, however, the country soon fell into chaos and fractured into small kingdoms with village fighting against village. In one such village lived a man named Deoses, who began to make a name for himself for fair dealing and the ability to settle disputes. He did this so successfully, in fact, that soon any legal conflict in the area was brought to him and his power increased. Throughout the land, the law had fallen into disrepute, 
The judges were corrupt, and no one entrusted their cases to the courts anymore, resorting to violence instead. When news spread of Deocy's wisdom, incorruptibility, and unshakable impartiality, Median villages far and wide turned to him to settle all manner of cases. Soon he became the sole arbiter of justice in the land. At the height of his power, Deocy's suddenly decided he had had enough. He would no longer sit in the chair of judgment, would hear no more suits, settle no more disputes between brother and brother, village and village. Complaining that he was spending so much time dealing with other people's problems that he had neglected his own affairs, he retired. The country once again descended into chaos. With the sudden withdrawal of a powerful arbiter like Deocy's, crime increased and contempt for the law was never greater. The Medes held a meeting of all the villages to decide how to get out of their predicament. We cannot continue to live in this country under these conditions, said one tribal leader. Let us appoint one of our number to rule so that we can live under orderly government rather than losing our homes altogether in the present chaos. And so, despite all that the Medes had suffered under the Assyrian despotism, they decided to set up a monarchy and name a king. And the man they most wanted to rule, of course, was the fair-minded Deuces. He was hard to convince, for he wanted nothing more to do with the village's infighting and bickering. But the Medes begged and pleaded. Without him, the country had descended into a state of lawlessness. Deuces finally agreed. Yet he also imposed conditions. An enormous palace was to be constructed for him. He was to be provided with bodyguards, and a capital city was to be built from which he could rule. All of this was done, and Deocis settled into his palace. In the center of the capital, the palace was surrounded by walls and completely inaccessible to ordinary people. Deocis then established the terms of his rule. Admission to his presence was forbidden. Communication with the king was only possible through messengers. No one in the royal court could see him more than once a week, and then only by permission. Deoces ruled for 53 years, extended the Median Empire, and established the foundation for what would later be the Persian Empire, under his great-great-grandson Cyrus. During Deoces' reign, the people's respect for him gradually turned into a form of worship. He was not a mere mortal, they believed, but the son of a god. Interpretation Deoces was a man of great ambition. He determined early on that the country needed a strong ruler and that he was the man for the job. In a land plagued with anarchy, the most powerful man is the judge and arbiter, so Deoces began his career by making his reputation as a man of impeccable fairness. At the height of his power as a judge, however, Deoces realized the truth of the law of absence and presence. By serving so many clients, he had become too noticeable, too available, and had lost the respect he had earlier enjoyed. People were taking his services for granted. The only way to regain the veneration and power he wanted was to withdraw completely and let the Medes taste what life was like without him. As he expected, they came begging for him to rule. 
Once Deus Caesar discovered the truth of this law, he carried it to its ultimate realization. In the palace his people had built for him, none could see him, except a few courtiers, and those only rarely. As Herodotus wrote, there was a risk that if they saw him habitually, it might lead to jealousy and resentment, and plots would follow. But if nobody saw him, the legend would grow that he was a being of a different order from mere men. Keys to Power Everything in the world depends on absence and presence. A strong presence will draw power and attention to you. You shine more brightly than those around you. But a point is inevitably reached where too much presence creates the opposite effect. The more you are seen and heard from, the more your value degrades. You become a habit. No matter how hard you try to be different, subtly, without your knowing why, people respect you less and less. At the right moment, you must learn to withdraw yourself before they unconsciously push you away. It is a game of hide-and-seek. Another, more everyday side of this law, but one that demonstrates its truth even further, is the law of scarcity in the science of economics. By withdrawing something from the market, you create instant value. Extend the law of scarcity to your own skills. Make what you are offering the world rare and hard to find, and you instantly increase its value. There always comes a point when those in power overstay their welcome. We have grown tired of them, lost respect for them. We see them as no different from the rest of mankind, which is to say that we see them as rather worse since we inevitably compare their current status in our eyes to their former one. There is an art to knowing when to retire. If it is done right, you regain the respect you had lost and retain a part of your power. Make yourself too available, and the aura of power you have created around yourself will wear away. Turn the game around. Make yourself less accessible, and you increase the value of your presence. Law 17. Keep others in suspense. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. Judgment. Humans are creatures of habit with an insatiable need to see familiarity in other people's actions. Your predictability gives them a sense of control. Turn the tables. Be deliberately unpredictable. Behavior that seems to have no consistency or purpose will keep them off balance, and they will wear themselves out trying to explain your moves. Taken to an extreme, this strategy can intimidate and terrorize. Observance of the Law In May of 1972, chess champion Boris Spassky anxiously awaited his rival Bobby Fischer in Reykjavik, Iceland. The two men had been scheduled to meet for the World Championship of Chess, but Fisher had not arrived on time, and the match was on hold. Fisher had problems with the size of the prize money, problems with the way the money was to be distributed, problems with the logistics of holding the match in Iceland. He might back out at any moment. Spassky tried to be patient. His Russian bosses felt that Fisher was humiliating him and told him to walk away. But Spassky wanted this match. He knew he could destroy Fisher, 
and nothing was going to spoil the greatest victory of his career. So it seems that all our work may come to nothing, Spassky told a comrade. But what can we do? It is Bobby's move. If he comes, we play. If he does not come, we do not play. A man who is willing to commit suicide has the initiative. Fisher finally arrived in Reykjavik, but the problems and the threat of cancellation continued. He disliked the hall where the match was to be fought. He criticized the lighting. He complained about the noise of the cameras. He even hated the chairs in which he and Spassky were to sit. Now the Soviet Union took the initiative and threatened to withdraw their man. The bluff apparently worked. After all the weeks of waiting, the endless and infuriating negotiations, Fisher agreed to play. Everyone was relieved. No one more than Spassky, but on the day of the official introductions, Fisher arrived very late, and on the day when the match of the century was to begin, he was late again. This time, however, the consequences would be dire. If he showed up too late, he would forfeit the first game. What was going on? Was he playing some sort of mind game, or was Bobby Fisher perhaps afraid of Boris Spassky? It seemed to the assembled Grand Masters and to Spassky that this young kid from Brooklyn had a terrible case of the jitters. At 5.09, Fisher showed up exactly one minute before the match was to be canceled. The first game of a chess tournament is critical since it sets the tone for the months to come. It is often a slow and quiet struggle, with the two players preparing themselves for the war and trying to read each other's strategies. This game was different. Fisher made a terrible move early on, perhaps the worst of his career, and when Spassky had him on the ropes, he seemed to give up. Yet Spassky knew that Fisher never gave up. Even when facing checkmate, he fought to the bitter end, wearing the opponent down. This time, though, he seemed resigned. Then, suddenly, he broke out a bold move that put the room in a buzz. The move shocked Spassky, but he recovered and managed to win the game. But no one could figure out what Fisher was up to. Had he lost deliberately? Or was he rattled? Unsettled? Even as some thought, insane? After his defeat in the first game, Fisher complained all the more loudly about the room, the cameras, and everything else. He also failed to show up on time for the second game. This time, the organizers had had enough. He was given a forfeit. Now he was down two games to none, a position from which no one had ever come back to win a chess championship. Fisher was clearly unhinged. Yet, in the third game, as all those who witnessed it remember, he had a ferocious look in his eye, a look that clearly bothered Spassky. And despite the hole he had dug for himself, he seemed supremely confident. He did make what appeared to be another blunder, as he had in the first game, but his cocky air made Spassky smell a trap. Yet, despite the Russian's suspicions, he could not figure out the trap, and before he knew it, Fisher had checkmated him. In fact, Fisher's unorthodox tactics had completely unnerved his opponent. At the end of the game, Fisher leaped up and rushed out, yelling to his confederates as he smashed a fist into his palm. I am crushing him with brute force. In the next games, Fisher pulled moves that no one had seen from him before. 
moves that were not his style. Now Spassky started to make blunders. After losing the sixth game, he started to cry. One grandmaster said, After this, Spassky's got to ask himself if it's safe to go back to Russia. After the eighth game, Spassky decided he knew what was happening. Bobby Fischer was hypnotizing him. He decided not to look Fisher in the eye. He lost anyway. After the 14th game, he called a staff conference and announced, An attempt is being made to control my mind. He wondered whether the orange juice they drank at the chess table could have been drugged. Maybe chemicals were being blown into the air. Finally, Spassky went public, accusing the Fisher team of putting something in the chairs that was altering Spassky's mind. The KGB went on alert. Boris Spassky was embarrassing the Soviet Union. The chairs were taken apart and x-rayed. A chemist found nothing unusual in them. The only things anyone found anywhere, in fact, were two dead flies in the lighting fixture. Spassky began to complain of hallucinations. He tried to keep playing, but his mind was unraveling. He could not go on. On September 2nd, he resigned. Although still relatively young, he never recovered from this defeat. Interpretation In previous games between Fisher and Spassky, Fisher had not fared well. Spassky had an uncanny ability to read his opponent's strategy and use it against him. Adaptable and patient, he would build attacks that would defeat not in seven moves, but in seventy. He defeated Fisher every time they played because he saw much further ahead, and because he was a brilliant psychologist who never lost control. One master said, He doesn't just look for the best move, he looks for the move that will disturb the man he is playing. Fisher, however, finally understood that this was one of the keys to Spassky's success. He played on your predictability, defeated you at your own game. Everything Fisher did for the championship match was an attempt to put the initiative on his side and to keep Spassky off balance. Clearly, the endless waiting had an effect on Spassky's psyche. Most powerful of all, though, were Fisher's deliberate blunders and his appearance of having no clear strategy. In fact, he was doing everything he could to scramble his old patterns, even if it meant losing the first match and forfeiting the second. Spassky was known for his sang-froid and level-headedness, but for the first time in his life, he could not figure out his opponent. He slowly melted down, until at the end, he was the one who seemed insane. Chess contains the concentrated essence of life. First, because to win, you have to be supremely patient and far-seeing. And second, because the game is built on patterns, whole sequences of moves that have been played before and will be played again with slight alterations in any one match. Your opponent analyzes the patterns you are playing and uses them to try to foresee your moves. Allowing him nothing predictable to base his strategy on gives you a big advantage. In chess, as in life, when people cannot figure out what you are doing, they are kept in a state of terror, waiting, uncertain, confused. Keys to Power Nothing is more terrifying than the sudden and unpredictable. That is why we are so frightened by earthquakes and tornadoes. We do not know when they will strike. After one has occurred, we wait in terror for the next one. To a lesser degree, 
This is the effect that unpredictable human behavior has on us. Animals behave in set patterns, which is why we are able to hunt and kill them. Only man has the capacity consciously to alter his behavior, to improvise and overcome the weight of routine and habit. Yet most men do not realize this power. They prefer the comforts of routine, of giving in to the animal nature that has them repeating the same compulsive actions time and time again. They do this because it requires no effort and because they mistakenly believe that if they do not unsettle others, they will be left alone. Understand, a person of power instills a kind of fear by deliberately unsettling those around him to keep the initiative on his side. You sometimes need to strike without warning to make others tremble when they least expect it. It is a device that the powerful have used for centuries. Unpredictability is most often the tactic of the master, but the underdog, too, can use it to great effect. If you find yourself outnumbered or cornered, throw in a series of unpredictable moves. Your enemies will be so confused that they will pull back or make a tactical blunder. People are always trying to read the motives behind your actions and to use your predictability against you. Throw in a completely inexplicable move and you put them on the defensive. Because they do not understand you, they are unnerved, and in such a state you can easily intimidate them. Unpredictability is not only a weapon of terror. Scrambling your patterns on a day-to-day -day basis will cause a stir around you and stimulate interest. People will talk about you, ascribe motives and explanations that have nothing to do with the truth, but that keep you constantly in their minds. In the end, the more capricious you appear, the more respect you will garner. Only the terminally subordinate act in a predictable manner. Law 18. Do not build fortresses to protect yourself. Isolation is dangerous. Judgment. The world is dangerous and enemies are everywhere. Everyone has to protect themselves. A fortress seems the safest, but isolation exposes you to more dangers than it protects you from. It cuts you off from valuable information. It makes you conspicuous and an easy target. Better to circulate among people, find allies, mingle. You are shielded from your enemies by the crowd. Transgression of the Law Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of China in 221 to 210 BC, was the mightiest man of his day. His empire was vaster and more powerful than that of Alexander the Great. He had conquered all of the kingdoms surrounding his own kingdom of Qin and unified them into one massive realm called China. But in the last years of his life, few, if anyone, saw him. The emperor lived in the most magnificent palace built to that date, in the capital of Xianyang. The palace had 270 pavilions. All of these were connected by secret underground passageways, allowing the emperor to move through the palace without anyone seeing him. He slept in a different room every night, and anyone who inadvertently laid eyes on him was instantly beheaded. Only a handful of men knew his whereabouts, and if they revealed it to anyone, they too were put to death. 
The first emperor had grown so terrified of human contact that when he had to leave the palace, he traveled incognito, disguising himself carefully. On one such trip through the provinces, he suddenly died. His body was borne back to the capital in the emperor's carriage, with a cart packed with salted fish trailing behind it to cover up the smell of the rotting corpse. No one was to know of his death. He died alone, far from his wives, his family, his friends, and his courtiers, accompanied only by a minister and a handful of eunuchs. Interpretation Shi Huangdi started off as the king of Qin, a fearless warrior of unbridled ambition. Writers of the time described him as a man with a waspish nose, eyes like slits, the voice of a jackal, and the heart of a tiger or wolf. He could be merciful sometimes, but more often he swallowed men up without a scruple. It was through trickery and violence that he conquered the provinces surrounding his own and created China, forging a single nation and culture out of many. As part of this process of unification, however, the first emperor outlawed the writings and teachings of Confucius, the philosopher whose ideas on the moral life had already become virtually a religion in Chinese culture. On Shi Huangdi's order, thousands of books relating to Confucius were burned, and anyone who quoted Confucius was to be beheaded. This made many enemies for the emperor, and he grew constantly afraid, even paranoid. The executions mounted. A contemporary, the writer Han Fei Tzu, noted that Qin has been victorious for four generations, yet has lived in constant terror and apprehension of destruction. As the emperor withdrew deeper and deeper into the palace to protect himself, he slowly lost control of the realm. Eunuchs and ministers enacted political policies without his approval or even his knowledge. They also plotted against him. By the end, he was emperor in name only and was so isolated that barely anyone knew he had died. He had probably been poisoned by the same scheming ministers who encouraged his isolation. That is what isolation brings. Retreat into a fortress and you lose contact with the sources of your power. You lose your ear for what is happening around you, as well as a sense of proportion. Instead of being safer, you cut yourself off from the kind of knowledge on which your life depends. Never enclose yourself so far from the streets that you cannot hear what is happening around you, including the plots against you. Keys to Power Machiavelli makes the argument that in a strictly military sense, a fortress is invariably a mistake. It becomes a symbol of power's isolation and is an easy target for its builder's enemies. Designed to defend you, fortresses actually cut you off from help and cut into your flexibility. They may appear impregnable, but once you retire to one, everyone knows where you are, and a siege does not have to succeed to turn your fortress into a prison. The danger for most people comes when they feel threatened. In such times, they tend to retreat and close ranks to find security in a kind of fortress. In doing so, however, they come to rely for information on a smaller and smaller circle and lose perspective on events around them. 
They lose maneuverability and become easy targets, and their isolation makes them paranoid. As in warfare and most games of strategy, isolation often precedes defeat and death. In moments of uncertainty and danger, you need to fight this desire to turn inward. Instead, make yourself more accessible, seek out old allies and make new ones, force yourself into more and more different circles. This has been the trick of powerful people for centuries. Finally, since power is a human creation, it is inevitably increased by contact with other people. Instead of falling into the fortress mentality, view the world in the following manner. It is like a vast palace with every room communicating with another. You need to be permeable, able to float in and out of different circles and mix with different types. That kind of mobility and social contact will protect you from plotters who will be unable to keep secrets from you and from your enemies, who will be unable to isolate you from your allies. Always on the move, you mix and mingle in the rooms of the palace, never sitting or settling in one place. No hunter can fix his aim on such a swift-moving creature. Law 19. Know who you are dealing with. Do not offend the wrong person. Judgment. There are many different kinds of people in the world. And you can never assume that everyone will react to your strategies in the same way. Deceive or outmaneuver some people, and they will spend the rest of their lives seeking revenge. They are wolves in lamb's clothing. Choose your victims and opponents carefully, then. Never offend or deceive the wrong person. Opponents, suckers, and victims. Preliminary topology. In your rise to power, you will come across many breeds of opponent, sucker, and victim. The highest form of the art of power is the ability to distinguish the wolves from the lambs, the foxes from the hares, the hawks from the vultures. If you make this distinction well, you will succeed without needing to coerce anyone too much. But if you deal blindly with whomever crosses your path, you will have a life of constant sorrow, if you even live that long. Being able to recognize types of people and to act accordingly is critical. The following are the five most dangerous and difficult types of mark in the jungle, as identified by artists, con and otherwise, of the past. The arrogant and proud man. Although he may initially disguise it, this man's touchy pride makes him very dangerous. Any perceived slight will lead to a vengeance of overwhelming violence. You may say to yourself, but I only said such and such at a party where everyone was drunk. It does not matter. There is no sanity behind his overreaction, so do not waste time trying to figure him out. If, at any point in your dealings with a person, you sense an oversensitive and overactive pride, flee. Whatever you are hoping for from him isn't worth it. The Hopelessly Insecure Man This man is related to the proud and arrogant type, but is less violent and harder to spot. His ego is fragile, his sense of self insecure, and if he feels himself deceived or attacked, the hurt will simmer. 
He will attack you in bites that will take forever to get big enough for you to notice. If you find you have deceived or harmed such a man, disappear for a long time. Do not stay around him, or he will nibble you to death. Mr. Suspicion Another variant on the breeds above. This is a future Joe Stalin. He sees what he wants to see, usually the worst, in other people, and imagines that everyone is after him. Mr. Suspicion is, in fact, the least dangerous of the three. Genuinely unbalanced, he is easy to deceive, just as Stalin himself was constantly deceived. Play on his suspicious nature to get him to turn against other people. But if you do become the target of his suspicions, watch out. The Serpent with a Long Memory If hurt or deceived, this man will show no anger on the surface. He will calculate and wait. Then, when he is in a position to turn the tables, he will exact a revenge marked by a cold-blooded shrewdness. Recognize this man by his calculation and cunning in the different areas of his life. He is usually cold and unaffectionate. Be doubly careful of this snake, and if you have somehow injured him, either crush him completely or get him out of your sight. The plain, unassuming, and often unintelligent man. Ah, your ears prick up when you find such a tempting victim. But this man is a lot harder to deceive than you imagine. Falling for a ruse often takes intelligence and imagination, a sense of the possible rewards. The blunt man will not take the bait because he does not recognize it. He is that unaware. The danger with this man is not that he will harm you or seek revenge, but merely that he will waste your time, energy, resources, and even your sanity in trying to deceive him. Have a test ready for a mark, a joke, a story. If his reaction is utterly literal, this is the type you are dealing with. Continue at your own risk. Transgression of the Law In the early part of the 13th century, Muhammad, the Shah of Khwarazm, managed after many wars to forge a huge empire extending west to present-day Turkey and south to Afghanistan. The empire's center was the great Asian capital of Samarkand. The Shah had a powerful, well-trained army and could mobilize 200,000 warriors within days. In 1219, Mohammed received an embassy from a new tribal leader to the east, Genghis Khan. The embassy included all sorts of gifts to the great Mohammed, representing the finest goods from Khan's small but growing Mongol empire. Genghis Khan wanted to reopen the Silk Route to Europe and offered to share it with Muhammad, while promising peace between the two empires. Muhammad did not know this upstart from the East, who, it seemed to him, was extremely arrogant to try to talk as an equal to one so clearly his superior. He ignored Khan's offer. Khan tried again. This time, he sent a caravan of a hundred camels filled with the rarest articles he had plundered from China. Before the caravan reached Mohammed, however, Inulchik, the governor of a region bordering on Samarkand, seized it for himself and executed its leaders. Genghis Khan was sure that this was a mistake, that Inulchik had acted without Mohammed's approval. 
he sent yet another mission to Muhammad, reiterating his offer and asking that the governor be punished. This time, Muhammad himself had one of the ambassadors beheaded and sent the other two back with shaved heads, a horrifying insult in the Mongol code of honor. Khan sent a message to the Shah. You have chosen war. What will happen will happen, and what is to be we know not. Only God knows. Mobilizing his forces, in 1220 he attacked Inulchik's province, where he seized the capital, captured the governor, and ordered him executed by having molten silver poured into his eyes and ears. Over the next year, Khan led a series of guerrilla-like campaigns against the Shah's much larger army. His method was totally novel for the time. His soldiers could move very fast on horseback and had mastered the art of firing with bow and arrow while mounted. The speed and flexibility of his forces allowed him to deceive Mohammed as to his intentions and the directions of his movements. Eventually, he managed first to surround Samarkand, then to seize it. Mohammed fled and a year later died, his vast empire broken and destroyed. Genghis Khan was sole master of Samarkand, the Silk Route, and most of northern Asia. Interpretation Never assume that the person you are dealing with is weaker or less important than you are. Some men are slow to take offense, which may make you misjudge the thickness of their skin and fail to worry about insulting them. But should you offend their honor and their pride, they will overwhelm you with a violence that seems sudden and extreme given their slowness to anger. If you want to turn people down, it is best to do so politely and respectfully, even if you feel their request is impudent or their offer ridiculous. Never reject them with an insult until you know them better. You may be dealing with a Genghis Khan. Keys to Power The ability to measure people and to know who you are dealing with is the most important skill of all in gathering and conserving power. Without it, you are blind. Not only will you offend the wrong people, you will choose the wrong people to work on and will think you are flattering people when you are actually insulting them. Before embarking on any move, take the measure of your mark or potential opponent. Otherwise, you will waste time and make mistakes. Study people's weaknesses, the chinks in their armor, their areas of both pride and insecurity. Know their ins and outs before you even decide whether or not to deal with them. Two final words of caution. First, in judging and measuring your opponent, never rely on your instincts. You will make the greatest mistakes of all if you rely on such inexact indicators. Nothing can substitute for gathering concrete knowledge. Study and spy on your opponent for however long it takes. This will pay off in the long run. Second, never trust appearances. Anyone with a serpent's heart can use a show of kindness to cloak it. A person who is blustery on the outside is often really a coward. Learn to see through appearances and their contradictions. Never trust the version that people give of themselves. It is utterly unreliable.
Law 20. Do not commit to anyone. Judgment. It is the fool who always rushes to take sides. Do not commit to any side or cause but yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others, playing people against one another, making them pursue you. Part 1. Do not commit to anyone but be courted by all. If you allow people to feel they possess you to any degree, you lose all power over them. By not committing your affections, they will only try harder to win you over. Stay aloof, and you gain the power that comes from their attention and frustrated desire. Play the Virgin Queen. Give them hope, but never satisfaction. Observance of the Law when Queen Elizabeth I ascended the throne of England in 1558, there was much to do about her finding a husband. The issue was debated in Parliament and was a main topic of conversation among Englishmen of all classes. They often disagreed as to whom she should marry, but everyone thought she should marry as soon as possible, for a queen must have a king and must bear heirs for the kingdom. The debates raged on for years. Meanwhile, the most handsome and eligible bachelors in the realm, Sir Robert Dudley, the Earl of Essex, Sir Walter Raleigh, vied for Elizabeth's hand. She did not discourage them, but she seemed to be in no hurry, and her hints as to which man might be her favorite often contradicted each other. In 1566, Parliament sent a delegation to Elizabeth urging her to marry before she was too old to bear children. She did not argue, nor did she discourage the delegation, but she remained a virgin nonetheless. The delicate game that Elizabeth played with her suitors slowly made her the subject of innumerable sexual fantasies and the object of cultish worship. The court physician, Simon Foreman, used his diary to describe his dreams of deflowering her. Painters represented her as Diana and other goddesses. The poet Edmund Spencer and others wrote eulogies to the Virgin Queen. She was referred to as the world's empress, that virtuous Virgo who rules the world and sets the stars in motion. In conversation with her, her many male suitors would employ bold sexual innuendo, a dare that Elizabeth did not discourage. She did all she could to stir their interest and simultaneously keep them at bay. Throughout Europe, kings and princes knew that a marriage with Elizabeth would seal an alliance between England and any nation. The King of Spain wooed her, as did the Prince of Sweden and the Archduke of Austria. She politely refused them all. The great diplomatic issue of Elizabeth's day was posed by the revolt of the Flemish and Dutch lowlands, which were then possessions of Spain. Should England break its alliance with Spain and choose France as its main ally on the continent, thereby encouraging Flemish and Dutch independence? By 1570, it had come to seem that an alliance with France would be England's wisest course. France had two eligible men of noble blood, the Dukes of Anjou and Alençon, brothers of the French king. Would either of them marry Elizabeth? 
Both had advantages, and Elizabeth kept the hopes of both alive. The issue simmered for years. The Duke of Anjou made several visits to England, kissed Elizabeth in public, even called her by pet names. She appeared to requite his affections. Meanwhile, as she flirted with the two brothers, a treaty was signed that sealed peace between France and England. By 1582, Elizabeth felt she could break off the courtship. In the case of the Duke of Anjou in particular, she did so with great relief. For the sake of diplomacy, she had allowed herself to be courted by a man whose presence she could not stand and whom she found physically repulsive. Once peace between France and England was secure, she dropped the unctuous duke as politely as she could. By this time, Elizabeth was too old to bear children. She was accordingly able to live the rest of her life as she desired, and she died the virgin queen. She left no direct heir, but ruled through a period of incomparable peace and cultural fertility. Interpretation Elizabeth knew that marriage can often lead to a female ruler's undoing. By marrying and committing to an alliance with one party or nation, the queen becomes embroiled in conflicts that are not of her choosing, conflicts which may eventually overwhelm her or lead her into a futile war. Also, the husband becomes the de facto ruler and often tries to do away with his wife, the queen. She had two goals as a ruler, to avoid marriage and to avoid war. She managed to combine these goals by dangling the possibility of marriage in order to forge alliances. The moment she committed to any single suitor would have been the moment she lost her power. She had to emanate mystery and desirability, never discouraging anyone's hopes, but never yielding. Through this lifelong game of flirting and withdrawing, Elizabeth dominated the country and every man who sought to conquer her. As the center of attention, she was in control. Keeping her independence above all, Elizabeth protected her power and made herself an object of worship. Keys to Power When you hold yourself back, you incur not anger, but a kind of respect. You instantly seem powerful because you make yourself ungraspable rather than succumbing to the group or to the relationship, as most people do. This aura of power only grows with time. As your reputation for independence grows, more and more people will come to desire you, wanting to be the one who gets you to commit. Desire is like a virus. If we see that someone is desired by other people, we tend to find this person desirable, too. The moment you commit, the magic is gone. You become like everyone else. People will try all kinds of underhanded methods to get you to commit. They will give you gifts, shower you with favors, all to put you under obligation. Encourage the attention, stimulate their interest, but do not commit at any cost. Accept the gifts and favors if you so desire, but be careful to maintain your inner aloofness. You cannot inadvertently allow yourself to feel obligated to anyone. Stay aloof and people will come to you. It will become a challenge for them to win your affections. As long as you imitate the wise virgin queen and stimulate their hopes, 
you will remain a magnet of attention and desire. Part 2. Do not commit to anyone. Stay above the fray. Do not let people suck you into their petty fights and squabbles. Seem supportive and interested, but find a way to remain neutral. Let others do the fighting, while you stand back, watch, and wait. When the fighting parties are good and tired, they will be ripe for the picking. You can make it a practice, in fact, to stir up quarrels between other people and then offer to mediate, gaining power as the go-between. Observance of the Law In the late 15th century, the strongest city-states in Italy, Venice, Florence, Rome, and Milan, found themselves constantly squabbling. Hovering above their struggles were the nations of France and Spain, ready to grab whatever they could from the weakened Italian powers. And trapped in the middle was the small state of Mantua, ruled by the young Duke Gianfrancesco Gonzaga. Mantua was strategically located in central Italy, and it seemed only a matter of time before one of the powers swallowed it up and it ceased to exist as an independent kingdom. Gonzaga was a fierce warrior and a skilled commander of troops, and he became a kind of mercenary general for whatever side paid him best. In the year 1490, he married Isabella d'Este, daughter of the ruler of another small Italian kingdom, Ferrara. Since he now spent most of his time away from Mantua, it fell to Isabella to rule in his stead. Isabella's first true test as ruler came in 1498, when King Louis XII of France was preparing armies to attack Milan. In their usual perfidious fashion, the Italian states immediately looked for ways to profit from Milan's difficulties. Pope Alexander VI promised not to intervene, thereby giving the French carte blanche. The Venetians signaled that they would not help Milan either, and in exchange for this, they hoped the French would give them Mantua. The ruler of Milan, Lodovico Sforza, suddenly found himself alone and abandoned. He turned to Isabella d'Este, one of his closest friends, also rumored to be his lover, and begged her to persuade Duke Gonzaga to come to his aid. Isabella tried, but her husband balked, for he saw Sforza's cause as hopeless. And so, in 1499, Louis swooped down on Milan and took it with ease. Isabella now faced a dilemma. If she stayed loyal to Lodovico, the French would now move against her. But if, instead, she allied herself with France, she would make enemies elsewhere in Italy, compromising Mantua once Louis eventually withdrew. And if she looked to Venice or Rome for help, they would simply swallow up Mantua under the cloak of coming to her aid. Yet, she had to do something. The mighty king of France was breathing down her neck. She decided to befriend him, as she had befriended Lodovico Sforza before him, with alluring gifts, witty, intelligent letters, and the possibility of her company for Isabella was famous as a woman of incomparable beauty and charm. In 1500, Louis invited Isabella to a great party in Milan to celebrate his victory. Leonardo da Vinci built an enormous mechanical lion for the affair, 
When the lion opened its mouth, it spewed fresh lilies, the symbols of French royalty. At the party, Isabella wore one of her celebrated dresses. She had by far the largest wardrobe of any of the Italian princesses. And just as she had hoped, she charmed and captivated Louis, who ignored all the other ladies vying for his attention. She soon became his constant companion, and in exchange for her friendship, he pledged to protect Mantua's independence from Venice. As one danger receded, however, another, more worrying one, arose, this time from the south, in the form of Cesare Borgia. Starting in 1500, Borgia had marched steadily northward, gobbling up all the small kingdoms in his path in the name of his father, Pope Alexander. Isabella understood Cesare perfectly. He could be neither trusted nor in any way offended. He had to be cajoled and kept at arm's length. Isabella began by sending him gifts, falcons, prize dogs, perfumes, and dozens of masks, which she knew he always wore when he walked the streets of Rome. She sent messengers with flattering greetings, although these messengers also acted as her spies. At one point, Cesare asked if he could house some troops in Mantua. Isabella managed to dissuade him politely, knowing full well that once the troops were quartered in the city, they would never leave. Even when Isabella was charming Cesare, she convinced everyone around her to take care never to utter a harsh word about him since he had spies everywhere and would use the slightest pretext for invasion. When Isabella had a child, she asked Cesare to be the godfather. She even dangled in front of him the possibility of a marriage between her family and his. Somehow it all worked, for although elsewhere he seized everything in his path, he spared Mantua. In 1503, Cesare's father Alexander died. And a few years later, the new pope, Julius II, went to war to drive the French troops from Italy. When the ruler of Ferrara, Alfonso, Isabella's brother, sided with the French, Julius decided to attack and humble him. Once again, Isabella found herself in the middle, the pope on one side, the French and her brother on the other. She dared not ally herself with either, but to offend either would be equally disastrous. Again, she played the double game at which she had become so expert. On the one hand, she got her husband Gonzaga to fight for the Pope, knowing he would not fight very hard. On the other, she let French troops pass through Mantua to come to Ferrara's aid. While she publicly complained that the French had invaded her territory, she privately supplied them with valuable information. To make the invasion plausible to Julius, she even had the French pretend to plunder Mantua. It worked once again. The Pope left Mantua alone. In 1513, after a lengthy siege, Julius defeated Ferrara, and the French troops withdrew. Worn out by the effort, the Pope died a few months later. With his death, the nightmarish cycle of battles and petty squabbles began to repeat itself. A great deal changed in Italy during Isabella's reign. Popes came and went. Cesare Borgia rose and then fell. Venice lost its empire. Milan was invaded. Florence fell into decline. And Rome 
was sacked by the Habsburg Emperor Charles V. Through all this, tiny Mantua not only survived, but thrived. Its court, the envy of Italy. Its wealth and sovereignty would remain intact for a century after Isabella's death in 1539. Interpretation. Learn to control yourself, to restrain your natural tendency to take sides and join the fight. Be friendly and charming to each of the combatants, then step back as they collide. With every battle, they grow weaker, while you grow stronger with every battle you avoid. Keys to Power To succeed in the game of power, you have to master your emotions. But even if you succeed in gaining such self-control, you can never control the temperamental dispositions of those around you. And this presents a great danger. Most people operate in a whirlpool of emotions, constantly reacting, churning up squabbles and conflicts. Your self-control and autonomy will only bother and infuriate them. They will try to draw you into the whirlpool, begging you to take sides in their endless battles or to make peace for them. If you succumb to their emotional entreaties, little by little, you will find your mind and time occupied by their problems. Do not allow whatever compassion and pity you possess to suck you in. You can never win in this game. The conflicts can only multiply. On the other hand, you cannot completely stand aside, for that would cause needless offense. To play the game properly, you must seem interested in other people's problems, even sometimes appear to take their side. But while you make outward gestures of support, you must maintain your inner energy and sanity by keeping your emotions disengaged. No matter how hard people try to pull you in, never let your interest in their affairs and petty squabbles go beyond the surface. Give them gifts. Listen with a sympathetic look. Even occasionally, play the charmer. But inwardly, keep both the friendly kings and the perfidious bourgeois at arm's length. By refusing to commit and thus maintaining your autonomy, you retain the initiative. Your moves stay matters of your own choosing, not defensive reactions to the push and pull of those around you. Play a waiting game and you cannot lose. Law 21. Play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than your mark. Judgment. No one likes feeling stupider than the next person. The trick, then, is to make your victims feel smart. And not just smart, but smarter than you are. Once convinced of this, they will never suspect that you may have ulterior motives. Observance of the Law In the winter of 1872, the U.S. financier Asbury Harpending was visiting London when he received a cable. A diamond mine had been discovered in the American West. The cable came from a reliable source, William Ralston, owner of the Bank of California. But Harpending nevertheless took it as a practical joke, probably inspired by the recent discovery of huge diamond mines in South Africa. True, when reports had first come in of gold being discovered in the western United States, everyone had been skeptical, and those had turned out to be true. But a diamond mine in the West? 
Harpending showed the cable to his fellow financier, Baron Rothschild, one of the richest men in the world, saying it must be a joke. The Baron, however, replied, don't be too sure about that. America is a very large country. It has furnished the world with many surprises already. Perhaps it has others in store. Harpending promptly took the first ship back to the States. When Harpending reached San Francisco, there was an excitement in the air, recalling the gold rush days of the late 1840s. Two crusty prospectors named Philip Arnold and John Slack had been the ones to find the diamond mine. They had not divulged its location in Wyoming, but had led a highly respected mining expert to it several weeks back, taking a circular route so he could not guess his whereabouts. Once there, the expert had watched as the miners dug up diamonds. Back in San Francisco, the expert had taken the gems to various jewelers, one of whom had estimated their worth at $1.5 million. Harpending and Ralston now asked Arnold and Slack to accompany them back to New York, where the jeweler Charles Tiffany would verify the original estimates. The prospectors responded uneasily. They smelled a trap. How could they trust these city slickers? What if Tiffany and the financiers managed to steal the whole mine out from under them? Ralston tried to allay their fears by giving them $100,000 and placing another $300,000 in escrow for them. If the deal went through, they would be paid an additional $300,000. The miners agreed. The little group traveled to New York, where a meeting was held at the mansion of Samuel L. Barlow. The cream of the city's aristocracy was in attendance. General George Brenton McClellan, commander of the Union forces in the Civil War, General Benjamin Butler, Horace Greeley, editor of the newspaper The New York Tribune, Harpending, Ralston, and Tiffany. Only Slack and Arnold were missing. As tourists in the city, they had decided to go sightseeing. When Tiffany announced that the gems were real and worth a fortune, the financiers could barely control their excitement. They wired Rothschild and other tycoons to tell them about the diamond mine and inviting them to share in the investment. At the same time, they also told the prospectors that they wanted one more test. They insisted that a mining expert of their choosing accompany Slack and Arnold to the site to verify its wealth. The prospectors reluctantly agreed. In the meantime, they said, they had to return to San Francisco the jewels that Tiffany had examined, they left with Harpending for safekeeping. Several weeks later, a man named Louis Jannon, the best mining expert in the country, met the prospectors in San Francisco. Jannon was a born skeptic who was determined to make sure that the mine was not a fraud. Accompanying Jannon were Harpending and several other interested financiers. As with the previous expert, the prospectors led the team through a complex series of canyons, completely confusing them as to their whereabouts. Arriving at the site, the financiers watched in amazement as Jannon dug the area up, leveling anthills, turning over boulders, and finding emeralds, rubies, sapphires, and most of all, diamonds. The dig lasted eight days, and by the end, Jannon was convinced. He told the investors that they now possessed the richest field in mining history. With a hundred men and proper machinery, he told them, I would guarantee to send out 
one million dollars in diamonds every 30 days. Returning to San Francisco a few days later, Ralston, Harpending, and company acted fast to form a $10 million corporation of private investors. First, however, they had to get rid of Arnold and Slack. That meant hiding their excitement. They certainly did not want to reveal the field's real value. So they played possum. Who knows if Janin is right, they told the prospectors. The mine may not be as rich as we think. This just made the prospectors angry. Trying a different tactic, the financiers told the two men that if they insisted on having shares in the mine, they would end up being fleeced by the unscrupulous tycoons and investors who would run the corporation. Better, they said, to take the $700,000 already offered, an enormous sum at the time, and put their greed aside. This, the prospectors seemed to understand, and they finally agreed to take the money, in return, signing the rights to the site over to the financiers and leaving maps to it. News of the mines spread like wildfire. Prospectors fanned out across Wyoming. Meanwhile, Harpending and Group began spending the millions they had collected from their investors, buying equipment, hiring the best men in the business, and furnishing luxurious offices in New York and San Francisco. A few weeks later, on their first trip back to the site, they learned the hard truth. Not a single diamond or ruby was to be found. It was all a fake. They were ruined. Harpending had unwittingly lured the richest men in the world into the biggest scam of the century. Interpretation Arnold and Slack pulled off their stupendous con not by using a fake engineer or bribing Tiffany, all of the experts had been real. All of them honestly believed in the existence of the mine and in the value of the gems. What had fooled them all was nothing else than Arnold and Slack themselves. The two men seemed to be such rubes, such hayseeds, so naive, that no one for an instant had believed them capable of an audacious scam. The prospectors had simply observed the law of appearing more stupid than the mark the deceiver's first commandment. The logistics of the con were quite simple. Months before Arnold and Slack announced the discovery of the diamond mine, they traveled to Europe, where they purchased some real gems for around $12,000, part of the money they had saved from their days as gold miners. They then salted the mine with these gems, which the first expert dug up and brought to San Francisco. The jewelers who had appraised these stones including Tiffany himself, had gotten caught up in the fever and had grossly overestimated their value. Then Ralston gave the prospectors $100,000 as security, and immediately after their trip to New York, they simply went to Amsterdam, where they bought sacks of uncut gems before returning to San Francisco. The second time they salted the mine, there were many more jewels to be found. The effectiveness of the scheme, however, rested not on tricks like these, but on the fact that Arnold and Slack played their parts to perfection. On their trip to New York, where they mingled with millionaires and tycoons, they played up their clodhopper image, wearing pants and coats a size or two too small and acting incredulous at everything they saw in the big city. No one believed that these country simpletons could possibly be conning the most devious, unscrupulous financiers of the time. 
keys to power. Given how important the idea of intelligence is to most people's vanity, it is critical never inadvertently to insult or impugn a person's brain power. That is an unforgivable sin, but if you can make this iron rule work for you, it opens up all sorts of avenues of deception. Subliminally reassure people that they are more intelligent than you are, or even that you are a bit of a moron, and you can run rings around them. The feeling of intellectual superiority you give them will disarm their suspicion muscles. Intelligence is the obvious quality to downplay, but why stop there? Taste and sophistication rank close to intelligence on the vanity scale, make people feel they are more sophisticated than you are, and their guard will come down. As Arnold and Slack knew, an air of complete naivete can work wonders. Those fancy financiers were laughing at them behind their backs. But who laughed loudest in the end? In general, then, always make people believe they are smarter and more sophisticated than you are. They will keep you around because you make them feel better about themselves. And the longer you are around, the more opportunities you will have to deceive them. Law 22. Use the surrender tactic. Transform weakness into power. Judgment. When you are weaker, never fight for honor's sake. Choose surrender instead. Surrender gives you time to recover, time to torment and irritate your conqueror, time to wait for his power to wane. Do not give him the satisfaction of fighting and defeating you. Surrender first. By turning the other cheek, you infuriate and unsettle him. Make surrender a tool of power. Observance of the Law Sometime in the 1920s, the German writer Bertolt Brecht became a convert to the cause of communism. From then on, his plays, essays, and poems reflected his revolutionary fervor, and he generally tried to make his ideological statements as clear as possible. When Hitler came to power in Germany, Brecht and his communist colleagues became marked men. He had many friends in the United States, Americans who sympathized with his beliefs, as well as fellow German intellectuals who had fled Hitler. In 1941, accordingly, Brecht emigrated to the United States and chose to settle in Los Angeles, where he hoped to make a living in the film business. Over the next few years, Brecht wrote screenplays with a pointedly anti-capitalist slant. He had little success in Hollywood, so in 1947, the war having ended, he decided to return to Europe. That same year, however, the U.S. Congress's House Un-American Activities Committee began its investigation into supposed communist infiltration in Hollywood. It began to gather information on Brecht, who had so openly espoused Marxism and on September 19, 1947, only a month before he had planned to leave the United States, he received a subpoena to appear before the committee. In addition to Brecht, a number of other writers, producers, and directors were summoned to appear as well, and this group came to be known as the Hollywood 19. Before going to Washington, the Hollywood 19 met to decide on a plan of action. Their approach would be confrontational, Instead of answering questions about their membership, or lack of it, 
in the Communist Party, they would read prepared statements that would challenge the authority of the committee and argue that its activities were unconstitutional. Even if this strategy meant imprisonment, it would gain publicity for their cause. Brecht disagreed. What good was it, he asked, to play the martyr and gain a little public sympathy if in the process they lost the ability to stage their plays and sell their scripts for years to come? He felt certain they were all more intelligent than the members of the committee. Why lower themselves to the level of their opponents by arguing with them? Why not outfox the committee by appearing to surrender to it while subtly mocking it? The Hollywood 19 listened to Brecht politely, but decided to stick to their plan, leaving Brecht to go his own way. The committee finally summoned Brecht on October 30th. They expected him to do what others among the Hollywood 19 who had testified before him had done, argue, refuse to answer questions, challenge the committee's right to hold its hearing, even yell and hurl insults. Much to their surprise, however, Brecht was the very picture of congeniality. He wore a suit, something he rarely did, smoked a cigar. He had heard that the committee chairman was a passionate cigar smoker, answered their questions politely, and generally deferred to their authority. Unlike the other witnesses, Brecht answered the question of whether he belonged to the Communist Party. He was not a member, he said, which happened to be the truth. One committee member asked him, Is it true you have written a number of revolutionary plays? Brecht had written many plays with overt communist messages, but he responded, I have written a number of poems and songs and plays in the fight against Hitler, and, of course, they can be considered, therefore, as revolutionary, because I, of course, was for the overthrow of that government. This statement went unchallenged. Brecht's English was more than adequate, but he used an interpreter throughout his testimony, a tactic that allowed him to play subtle games with language. When committee members found communist leanings in lines from English editions of his poems, he would repeat the lines in German for the interpreter who would then retranslate them, and somehow they would come out innocuous. At one point, a committee member read one of Brecht's revolutionary poems out loud in English and asked him if he had written it. No, he responded, I wrote a German poem, which is very different from this. The author's elusive answers baffled the committee members, but his politeness and the way he yielded to their authority made it impossible for them to get angry with him. After only an hour of questioning, the committee members had had enough. Thank you very much, said the chairman. You are a good example to the other witnesses. Not only did they free him, they offered to help him if he had any trouble with immigration officials who might detain him for their own reasons. The following day, Brecht left the U.S., never to return. Interpretation the Hollywood 19's confrontational approach won them a lot of sympathy, and years later they gained a kind of vindication in public opinion. But they were also blacklisted and lost valuable years of profitable working time. Brecht, on the other hand, expressed his disgust at the committee more indirectly. It was not that he changed his beliefs or compromised his values. Instead, during his short testimony, he kept the upper hand by appearing to yield, while all the time 
running circles around the committee with vague responses, outright lies that went unchallenged because they were wrapped in enigmas and word games. In the end, he kept the freedom to continue his revolutionary writing, as opposed to suffering imprisonment or detainment in the United States, even while subtly mocking the committee and its authority with his pseudo-obedience. Keep in mind the following. People trying to make a show of their authority are easily deceived by the surrender tactic. Your outward sign of submission makes them feel important, satisfied that you respect them. They become easier targets for a later counterattack or for the kind of indirect ridicule used by Brecht. Measuring your power over time Never sacrifice long-term maneuverability for the short-lived glories of martyrdom. Keys to Power What gets us into trouble in the realm of power is often our own overreaction to the moves of our enemies and rivals. That overreaction creates problems we would have avoided had we been more reasonable. It also has an endless rebound effect, for the enemy then overreacts as well. It is always our first instinct to react, to meet aggression with some other kind of aggression. But the next time someone pushes you and you find yourself starting to react, try this. Do not resist or fight back, but yield. Turn the other cheek. Bend. You will find that this often neutralizes their behavior. They expected, even wanted you to react with force, and so they are caught off guard and confounded by your lack of resistance. By yielding, you, in fact, control the situation because your surrender is part of a larger plan to lull them into believing they have defeated you. This is the essence of the surrender tactic. Inwardly, you stay firm, but outwardly, you bend. Deprived of a reason to get angry, your opponents will often be bewildered instead, and they are unlikely to react with more violence, which would demand a reaction from you instead. You are allowed the time and space to plot the counter moves that will bring them down. In the battle of the intelligent against the brutal and the aggressive, the surrender tactic is the supreme weapon. It does require self-control. Those who genuinely surrender give up their freedom and may be crushed by the humiliation of their defeat. You have to remember that you only appear to surrender, like the animal that plays dead to save its hide. Power is always in flux. Since the game is, by nature, fluid and an arena of struggle, those with power almost always find themselves eventually on the downward swing. If you find yourself temporarily weakened, the surrender tactic is perfect for raising yourself up again. It disguises your ambition. It teaches you patience and self-control, key skills in the game and it puts you in the best possible position for taking advantage of your oppressor's sudden slide. If you run away or fight back, in the long run, you cannot win. If you surrender, you will almost always emerge victorious. Law 23. Concentrate your forces. Judgment. Conserve your forces and energies by keeping them concentrated at their strongest point. You gain more by finding a rich mine and mining it deeper than by flitting from one shallow mine to another. 
Intensity defeats extensity every time. When looking for sources of power to elevate you, find the one key patron, the fat cow, who will give you milk for a long time to come. Transgression of the Law In China, in the early 6th century BC, the kingdom of Wu began a war with the neighboring northern provinces of the Middle Kingdom. Wu was a growing power, but it lacked the great history and civilization of the Middle Kingdom, for centuries the center of Chinese culture. By defeating the Middle Kingdom, the King of Wu would instantly raise his status. The war began with great fanfare and several victories, but it soon bogged down. A victory on one front would leave the Wu armies vulnerable on another. The king's chief minister and advisor, Wu Tzushu, warned him that the barbarous state of Yue to the south was beginning to notice the kingdom of Wu's problems and had designs to invade. The king only laughed at such worries. One more big victory and the great middle kingdom would be his. In the year 490, Wu Tzushu sent his son away to safety in the kingdom of Qi. In doing so, he sent the king a signal that he disapproved of the war and that he believed the king's selfish ambition was leading Wu to ruin. The king, sensing betrayal, lashed out at his minister, accusing him of a lack of loyalty and, in a fit of anger, ordered him to kill himself. Wu Tzushu obeyed his king, but before he plunged the knife into his chest, he cried, Tear out my eyes, O king, and fix them on the gate of Wu, so that I may see the triumphant entry of Yue. As Wu Tzushu had predicted, within a few years, a Yue army passed beneath the gate of Wu. As the barbarians surrounded the palace, the king remembered his minister's last words and felt the dead man's disembodied eyes watching his disgrace. Unable to bear his shame, the king killed himself, covering his face so that he would not have to meet the reproachful gaze of his minister in the next world. Interpretation The story of Wu is a paradigm of all the empires that have come to ruin by overreaching. Drunk with success and sick with ambition, such empires expand to grotesque proportions and meet a ruin that is total. For the Chinese, the fate of the kingdom of Wu serves as an elemental lesson on what happens when you dissipate your forces on several fronts, losing sight of distant dangers for the sake of present gain. If you are not in danger, says Sun Tzu, do not fight. It is almost a physical law. What is bloated beyond its proportions inevitably collapses. The mind must not wander from goal to goal or be distracted by success from its sense of purpose and proportion. What is concentrated, coherent, and connected to its past has power. What is dissipated, divided, and distended rots and falls to the ground. The bigger it bloats, the harder it falls. Keys to Power As Schopenhauer wrote, intellect is a magnitude of intensity, not a magnitude of extensity. Napoleon knew the value of concentrating your forces at the enemy's weakest spot. It was the secret of his success on the battlefield. But his willpower and his mind were equally modeled on this notion.
single-mindedness of purpose, total concentration on the goal, and the use of these qualities against people less focused, people in a state of distraction, such an arrow will find its mark every time and overwhelm the enemy. Concentrate on a single goal, a single task, and beat it into submission. In the world of power, you will constantly need help from other people, usually those more powerful than you. The fool flits from one person to another, believing that he will survive by spreading himself out. It is a corollary of the law of concentration, however, that much energy is saved and more power is attained by affixing yourself to a single, appropriate source of power. Throughout his life, the 16th century writer Pietro Aretino suffered the indignities of having to please this prince and that. At last, he had had enough and decided to woo Charles V, promising the emperor the services of his powerful pen. He finally discovered the freedom that came from attachment to a single source of power. Michelangelo found this freedom with Pope Julius II, Galileo with the Medicis. In the end, the single patron appreciates your loyalty and becomes dependent on your services. In the long run, the master serves the slave. Power always exists in concentrated forms. In any organization, it is inevitable for a small group to hold the strings. And often, it is not those with the titles. In the game of power, only the fool flails about without fixing his target. You must find out who controls the operations, who is the real director behind the scenes. As Richelieu discovered at the beginning of his rise to the top of the French political scene during the early 17th century, it was not King Louis XIII who decided things. It was the king's mother, and so he attached himself to her and catapulted through the ranks of the courtiers all the way to the top. It is enough to strike oil once. Your wealth and power are assured for a lifetime. Law 24. Play the perfect courtier. Judgment. The perfect courtier thrives in a world where everything revolves around power and political dexterity. He has mastered the art of indirection. He flatters, yields to superiors, and asserts power over others in the most oblique and graceful manner. Learn and apply the laws of courtiership, and there will be no limit to how far you can rise in the court. Court Society It is a fact of human nature that the structure of a court society forms itself around power. In the past, the court gathered around the ruler and had many functions. Besides keeping the ruler amused, it was a way to solidify the hierarchy of royalty, nobility, and the upper classes, and to keep the nobility both subordinate and close to the ruler, so that he could keep an eye on them. The court serves power in many ways, but most of all, it glorifies the ruler, providing him with a microcosmic world that must struggle to please him. To be a courtier was a dangerous game, a 19th-century Arab traveler to the court of Darfur, in what is now Sudan, reported that courtiers there had to do whatever the sultan did. If he were injured, they had to suffer the same injury. 
If he fell off his horse during a hunt, they fell too. Mimicry like this appeared in courts all over the world. More troublesome was the danger of displeasing the ruler. One wrong move spelled death or exile. The successful courtier had to walk a tightrope, pleasing but not pleasing too much, obeying but somehow distinguishing himself from the other courtiers, while also never distinguishing himself so far as to make the ruler insecure. Great courtiers throughout history have mastered the science of manipulating people. They make the king feel more kingly. They make everyone else fear their power. They are magicians of appearance, knowing that most things at court are judged by how they seem. Great courtiers are gracious and polite. Their aggression is veiled and indirect. Masters of the word, they never say more than necessary, getting the most out of a compliment or hidden insult. They are magnets of pleasure. People want to be around them because they know how to please. Yet, they neither fawn nor humiliate themselves. Great courtiers become the king's favorites, enjoying the benefits of that position. They often end up more powerful than the ruler, for they are wizards in the accumulation of influence. Many today dismiss court life as a relic of the past, a historical curiosity. They reason, according to Machiavelli, as though heaven, the sun, the elements, and men had changed the order of their motions and power and were different from what they were in ancient times. There may be no more sun kings, but there are still plenty of people who believe the sun revolves around them. The royal court may have more or less disappeared, or at least lost its power, but courts and courtiers still exist because power still exists. A courtier is rarely asked to fall off a horse anymore, but the laws that govern court politics are as timeless as the laws of power. There is much to be learned, then, from great courtiers past and present. The Laws of Court Politics Avoid ostentation. It is never prudent to prattle on about yourself or call too much attention to your actions. The more you talk about your deeds, the more suspicion you cause. You also stir up enough envy among your peers to induce treachery and backstabbing. Be careful, ever so careful, in trumpeting your own achievements and always talk less about yourself than about other people. Modesty is generally preferable. Practice nonchalance. Never seem to be working too hard. Your talent must appear to flow naturally with an ease that makes people take you for a genius rather than a workaholic. Be frugal with flattery. It may seem that your superiors cannot get enough flattery, but too much of even a good thing loses its value. It also stirs up suspicion among your peers. Learn to flatter indirectly by downplaying your own contribution, for example, to make your master look better. Arrange to be noticed. There is a paradox. You cannot display yourself too brazenly, yet you must also get yourself noticed. You stand no chance of rising if the ruler does not notice you in the swamp of courtiers. This task requires much art. 
it is often initially a matter of being seen in the literal sense. Pay attention to your physical appearance then and find a way to create a distinctive, a subtly distinctive, style and image. Alter your style and language according to the person you are dealing with. The pseudo-belief inequality, the idea that talking and acting the same way with everyone, no matter what their rank, makes you somehow a paragon of civilization, is a terrible mistake. Those below you will take it as a form of condescension, which it is, and those above you will be offended, although they may not admit it. You must change your style and your way of speaking to suit each person. This is not lying, it is acting, and acting is an art, not a gift from God. Learn the art. Never be the bearer of bad news. The king kills the messenger who brings bad news. This is a cliché, but there is truth to it. You must struggle and, if necessary, lie and cheat to be sure that the lot of the bearer of bad news falls on a colleague, never on you. Bring only good news and your approach will gladden your master. Never affect friendliness and intimacy with your master. He does not want a friend for a subordinate. He wants a subordinate. Never approach him in an easy, friendly way or act as if you are on the best of terms. That is his prerogative. If he chooses to deal with you on this level, assume a wary chumminess. Otherwise, err in the opposite direction and make the distance between you clear. Never criticize those above you directly. This may seem obvious, but there are often times when some sort of criticism is necessary. To say nothing or to give no advice would open you to risks of another sort. You must learn, however, to couch your advice and criticism as indirectly and as politely as possible. Think twice or three times before deciding you have made them sufficiently circuitous. Err on the side of subtlety and gentleness. Be frugal in asking those above you for favors. Nothing irritates a master more than having to reject someone's request. It stirs up guilt and resentment. Ask for favors as rarely as possible and know when to stop. Never joke about appearances or taste. A lively wit and a humorous disposition are essential qualities for a good courtier, and there are times when vulgarity is appropriate and engaging. But avoid any kind of joke about appearance or taste, two highly sensitive areas, especially with those above you. Do not even try it when you are away from them. You will dig your own grave. Do not be the court cynic. If you constantly criticize your equals or subordinates, some of that criticism will rub off on you, hovering over you like a gray cloud wherever you go. People will groan at each new cynical comment, and you will irritate them. By expressing modest admiration for other people's achievements, you paradoxically call attention to your own. The ability to express wonder and amazement and seem like you mean it is a rare and dying talent, but one still greatly valued. Be self-observant. The mirror is a miraculous invention. Without it, you would commit great sins against beauty and decorum. 
You also need a mirror for your actions. This can sometimes come from other people telling you what they see in you, but that is not the most trustworthy method. You must be the mirror, training your mind to see yourself as others see you. Are you acting too obsequious? Are you trying too hard to please? Do you seem desperate for attention, giving the impression that you are on the decline? Be observant about yourself, and you will avoid a mountain of blunders. Master your emotions. As an actor in a great play, you must learn to cry and laugh on command and when it is appropriate. You must be able both to disguise your anger and frustration and to fake your contentment and agreement. You must be the master of your own face. Call it lying, if you like. But if you prefer to not play the game and to always be honest and upfront, do not complain when others call you obnoxious and arrogant. Fit the spirit of the times. A slight affectation of a past era can be charming as long as you choose a period at least 20 years back. Wearing the fashions of 10 years ago is ludicrous unless you enjoy the role of court jester. Your spirit and way of thinking must keep up with the times, even if the times offend your sensibilities. Be too forward-thinking, however, and no one will understand you. It is never a good idea to stand out too much in this area. You are best off at least being able to mimic the spirit of the times. Be a source of pleasure. This is critical. It is an obvious law of human nature that we will flee what is unpleasant and distasteful, while charm and the promise of delight will draw us like moths to a flame. Make yourself the flame and you will rise to the top. Since life is otherwise so full of unpleasantness and pleasure so scarce, you will be as indispensable as food and drink. This may seem obvious, but what is obvious is often ignored or unappreciated. There are degrees to this. Not everyone can play the role of favorite, for not everyone is blessed with charm and wit. But we can all control our unpleasant qualities and obscure them when necessary. Law 25. Recreate yourself. Judgment. Do not accept the roles that society foists on you. Recreate yourself by forging a new identity, one that commands attention and never bores the audience. Be the master of your own image rather than letting others define it for you. Incorporate dramatic devices into your public gestures and actions. Your power will be enhanced and your character will seem larger than life. Observance of the Law In the year 1831, a young woman named Aurore Dupin du Devant left her husband and family in the provinces and moved to Paris. She wanted to be a writer. Marriage, she felt, was worse than prison, for it left her neither the time nor the freedom to pursue her passion. In Paris, she would establish her independence and make her living by writing. Soon after Dudevant arrived in the capital, however, she had to confront certain harsh realities. To have any degree of freedom in Paris, you had to have money. For a woman, money could only come through marriage or prostitution. No woman had ever come close to making a living by writing. Women wrote as a hobby, 
supported by their husbands or by an inheritance. In fact, when Dudevant first showed her writing to an editor, he told her, You should make babies, madam, not literature. Clearly, Dudevant had come to Paris to attempt the impossible. In the end, though, she came up with a strategy to do what no woman had ever done, a strategy to recreate herself completely, forging a public image of her own making. Women writers before her had been forced into a ready-made role, that of the second-rate artist who wrote mostly for other women. Dudevant decided that if she had to play a role, she would turn the game around. She would play the part of a man. In 1832, a publisher accepted Dudevant's first major novel, Indiana. She had chosen to publish it under a pseudonym, George Sand, and all of Paris assumed this impressive new writer was male. Dudevant had sometimes worn men's clothing before creating George Sand. She had always found men's shirts and riding breeches more comfortable. Now, as a public figure, she exaggerated the image. She added long men's coats, gray hats, heavy boots, and dandyish cravats to her wardrobe. She smoked cigars and in conversation expressed herself like a man, unafraid to dominate the conversation or to use a saucy word. This strange male-female writer fascinated the public. And unlike other women writers, Sand found herself accepted into the clique of male artists. She drank and smoked with them, even carried on affairs with the most famous artists of Europe, Musset, Liszt, Chopin. It was she who did the wooing, and also the abandoning. She moved on at her discretion. Those who knew Sand well understood that her male persona protected her from the public's prying eyes. Out in the world, she enjoyed playing the part to the extreme. In private, she remained herself. She also realized that the character of George Sand could grow stale or predictable, and to avoid this, she would, every now and then, dramatically alter the character she had created. Instead of conducting affairs with famous men, she would begin meddling in politics, leading demonstrations, inspiring student rebellions. No one would dictate to her the limits of the character she had created. Long after she died, and after most people had stopped reading her novels, the larger-than-life theatricality of that character has continued to fascinate and inspire. Interpretation the world wants to assign you a role in life, and once you accept that role, you are doomed. Your power is limited to the tiny amount allotted to the role you have selected or have been forced to assume. An actor, on the other hand, plays many roles. Enjoy that protean power, and if it is beyond you, at least forge a new identity one of your own making, one that has had no boundaries assigned to it by an envious and resentful world. This act of defiance is Promethean. It makes you responsible for your own creation. Your new identity will protect you from the world precisely because it is not you. It is a costume you put on and take off. You need not take it personally, and your new identity sets you apart gives you theatrical presence. Those in the back rows can see you and hear you. Those in the front rows marvel at your audacity. 
Keys to Power The character you seem to have been born with is not necessarily who you are. Beyond the characteristics you have inherited, your parents, your friends, and your peers have helped to shape your personality. The Promethean task of the powerful is to take control of the process, to stop allowing others that ability to limit and mold them. Remake yourself into a character of power. Working on yourself like clay should be one of your greatest and most pleasurable life tasks. It makes you, in essence, an artist, an artist creating yourself. The first step in the process of self-creation is self-consciousness, being aware of yourself as an actor and taking control of your appearance and emotions. The bad actor is the one who is always sincere. People who wear their hearts on their sleeves out in society are tiresome and embarrassing. Their sincerity notwithstanding, it is hard to take them seriously. Good actors control themselves better. They can play sincere and heartfelt, can affect a tear and a compassionate look at will, but they don't have to feel it. They externalize emotion in a form that others can understand. Method acting is fatal in the real world. No ruler or leader could possibly play the part if all the emotions he showed had to be real. So learn self-control. Adopt the plasticity of the actor who can mold his or her face to the emotion required. The second step in the process of self-creation is a variation on the George Sands strategy. The creation of a memorable character, one that compels attention, that stands out above the other players on the stage. This was the game Abraham Lincoln played. The homespun, common countryman he knew was a kind of president that America had never had but would delight in electing. Although many of these qualities came naturally to him, he played them up, the hat and clothes, the beard. No president before him had worn a beard. Lincoln was also the first president to use photographs to spread his image, helping to create the icon of the homespun president. You must appreciate the importance of stage entrances and exits. When Cleopatra first met Caesar in Egypt, she arrived rolled up in a carpet, which she arranged to have unfurled at his feet. Your own entrances and exits should be crafted and planned as carefully. Remember that overacting can be counterproductive. It is another way of spending too much effort trying to attract attention. The actor Richard Burton discovered early in his career that by standing totally still on stage, he drew attention to himself and away from the other actors. It is less what you do that matters clearly than how you do it. Your gracefulness and imposing stillness on the social stage count for more than overdoing your part and moving around too much. Finally, learn to play many roles, to be whatever the moment requires. Adapt your mask to the situation. Be protean in the faces you wear. Bismarck played this game to perfection. To a liberal, he was a liberal. To a hawk, he was a hawk. He could not be grasped, and what cannot be grasped cannot be consumed. Law 26. Keep your hands clean. Judgment. 
You must seem a paragon of civility and efficiency. Your hands are never soiled by mistakes and nasty deeds. Maintain such a spotless appearance by using others as unwitting pawns and screens to disguise your involvement. Part 1. Conceal your mistakes. Have a scapegoat around to take the blame. Our good name and reputation depend more on what we conceal than on what we reveal. Everyone makes mistakes, but those who are truly clever manage to hide them and to make sure someone else is blamed. A convenient scapegoat should always be kept around for such moments. Observance of the Law Near the end of the 2nd century A.D., as China's mighty Han Empire slowly collapsed, the great general and imperial minister Tao Tao emerged as the most powerful man in the country. Seeking to extend his power base and to rid himself of the last of his rivals, Tao Tao began a campaign to take control of the strategically vital central plain. During the siege of a key city, he slightly miscalculated the timing for supplies of grain to arrive from the capital. As he waited for the shipment to come in, the army ran low on food, and Tao Tao was forced to order the chief of commissariat to reduce its rations. Tao Tao kept a tight rein on the army and ran a network of informers. His spies soon reported that the men were complaining, grumbling that he was living well while they themselves had barely enough to eat. Perhaps Tao Tao was keeping the food for himself, they murmured. If the grumbling spread, Tao Tao could have a mutiny on his hands. He summoned the chief of commissariat to his tent. I want to ask you to lend me something, and you must not refuse, Tao Tao told the chief. What is it? the chief replied. I want the loan of your head to show to the troops, said Tao Tao. But I've done nothing wrong, cried the chief. I know, said Tao Tao with a sigh, but if I do not put you to death, there will be a mutiny. Do not grieve. After you're gone, I'll look after your family. Put this way, the request left the chief no choice. So he resigned himself to his fate and was beheaded that very day. Seeing his head on public display, the soldiers stopped grumbling. Some saw through Tao Tao's gesture, but kept quiet, stunned, and intimidated by his violence, and most accepted his version of who was to blame, preferring to believe in his wisdom and fairness than in his incompetence and cruelty. Interpretation Occasional mistakes are inevitable. The world is just too unpredictable. People of power, however, are undone not by the mistakes they make, but by the way they deal with them. Like surgeons, they must cut away the tumor with speed and finality. Excuses satisfy no one, and apologies make everyone uncomfortable. The mistake does not vanish with an apology. It deepens and festers. Better to cut it off instantly, distract attention from yourself, and focus attention on a convenient scapegoat before people have time to ponder your responsibility or your possible incompetence. Keys to Power the use of scapegoats is as old as civilization itself, and examples of it can be found in cultures around the world. The main idea behind these sacrifices is the shifting of guilt and sin to an outside figure, object, animal, or man, 
which is then banished or destroyed. The bloody sacrifice of the scapegoat seems a barbaric relic of the past, but the practice lives on to this day, if indirectly and symbolically, since power depends on appearances, and those in power must seem never to make mistakes. The use of scapegoats is as popular as ever. What modern leader will take responsibility for his blunders? He searches out others to blame, a scapegoat to sacrifice. When Mao Zedong's cultural revolution failed miserably, he made no apologies or excuses to the Chinese people. Instead, like Tao Tao before him, he offered up scapegoats, including his own personal secretary and high-ranking member of the party, Chen Boda. Franklin D. Roosevelt had a reputation for honesty and fairness. Throughout his career, however, he faced many situations in which being the nice guy would have spelled political disaster, yet he could not be seen as the agent of any foul play. For twenty years, then, his secretary, Lewis Howe, handled the backroom deals, the manipulation of the press, the underhanded campaign maneuvers. And whenever a mistake was committed, or a dirty trick contradicting Roosevelt's carefully crafted image became public, Howe served as a scapegoat and never complained. Finally, history has time and again shown the value of using a close associate as a scapegoat. This is known as the fall of the favorite. Most kings had a personal favorite at court, a man whom they singled out sometimes for no apparent reason and lavished with favors and attention. But this court favorite could serve as a convenient scapegoat in case of a threat to the king's reputation. The public would readily believe in the scapegoat's guilt. Why would the king sacrifice his favorite unless he were guilty? And the other courtiers, resentful of the favorite anyway, would rejoice at his downfall. The king, meanwhile, would rid himself of a man who by that time had probably learned too much about him perhaps becoming arrogant and even disdainful of him. Choosing a close associate as a scapegoat has the same value as the fall of the favorite. You may lose a friend or aide, but in the long-term scheme of things, it is more important to hide your mistakes than to hold on to someone who one day will probably turn against you. Besides, you can always find a new favorite to take his place. Part 2. Make Use of the Cat's Paw In the fable, the monkey grabs the paw of his friend, the cat, and uses it to fish chestnuts out of the fire, thus getting the nuts he craves without hurting himself. If there is something unpleasant or unpopular that needs to be done, it is far too risky for you to do the work yourself. You need a cat's paw, someone who does the dirty, dangerous work for you. The cat's paw grabs what you need, hurts whom you need hurt, and keeps people from noticing that you are the one responsible. Let someone else be the executioner or the bearer of bad news, while you bring only joy and glad tidings. <laughs>